This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire. Even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your 9 to 5 for 9 holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Big guests all week long on this radio show. We got good ones for you today. I want you to make an appointment because you're going to hear from Jonathan Smith in the 5 o'clock hour, Oregon State football coach. And you're going to hear from Nick Aliotti, the longtime University of Oregon defensive coordinator. He'll be joining us in the 4 o'clock hour. And you're going to hear from Portland State's new president and the star of the viral video that uh, Portland State and Sport Oregon produced. Ann Cudd, the new president at Portland State. She's coming on in the 3 o'clock hour, just about 20 minutes from now. You'll hear her fantastic stuff on today's show, but we have to start with the question. You know what the question is? The question is, it's not about the Blazers who are beginning their NBA season tonight. The question is about the University of Washington. What is the University of Washington hiding? What is it afraid of? What is it doing? What's the strategy? Uh, you tell me. Because when uh, the filing today went out, and the court filing that just got filed uh, maybe about an hour ago in Colfax, Washington, in Whitman County Superior Court. Oh, that charming little courtroom in that tiny small town. Oregon State and Washington State filed their motion today um, for a preliminary injunction. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try to let the legalese of this go melt away. It's the next step, basically, in their ongoing lawsuit against the Pac-12 Conference and Commissioner George Klyovkov. We all know Washington State and Oregon State would like to uh, would like to uh, keep the assets inside the conference. They'd like to be in charge of the governance of the conference. I don't think they're looking to hose the departing members, but the court filing today had some discovery that was part of it. It's not all of the discovery, but it was a lot of, uh, you know, sort of the reiteration of the fact that the conference members, as they whittled down from 12 to 10 and then to 9 and then down to 4 when it was Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal, and then ultimately down to 2, that the conference members all sort of acted in one way. Like when USC and UCLA left the Pac-12 conference, they lost their board seats. And when Colorado left in July, Colorado's chancellor, Philip DiStefano, was no longer allowed into the board meetings. And so then when Oregon and Washington and Arizona State and Arizona and Utah left, George Klyovkov, you know, announced to anyone internally and to media members, including myself, that he was down to four board members. And the discovery that was posted today along with that filing supports that like all of the evidence points in the same direction that Oregon State and Washington State if you're going to follow how the conference governed itself if you're going to follow the bylaws Oregon State and Washington State should be calling the shots right now they should be the only two members that have board seats and have any input into what happens after August 1 2024 
Now, you know, you can argue and debate, you know, whether Oregon State and Washington State should act in the best interest of the current members, because they certainly weren't worried about Oregon State and Washington State, were they, when they left, when they did what was in their best interest. But, you uh, you know, as I talk to lawyers, as I talk to the two universities, the picture I gather is that Oregon State and Washington State aren't in this to punish anyone. But the court filing today had some discovery in it that it was kind of interesting, kind of juicy. Uh, and Exhibit 33 uh, of today's filing caught my eye. That was a text message that was sent from George Klyovkov to me. And it's a weird thing to see your name show up as part of an exhibit in the Pac-12 lawsuit with the Beavers and the Cougars. And I was like, oh, like what is this? And I sat forward and I read it and I, I looked at it and I remembered it because it was a text message that George Klyovkov sent to me on the morning of August 5th, the day after the conference imploded. Remember, it happened on a Friday, and then there was a Saturday. Well, I was up early on that Saturday morning, and I was certainly interested in writing about what happens now, what happens next, what happens to the four schools. Who, you know, What's going to happen to Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal? Can they put this thing back together? And so I reached out to George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, that morning, and he texted me, quote, as of today, we have four board members, end quote. That's on August 5th. It showed up in the court filing. Apparently was provided by George Klyovkov to the, to the uh, court as part of the discovery process. I am being told by a source that Klyovkov had to turn in his entire cell phone, all the contents of his cell phone, so I'm sure they have sifted through it, and they're kind of picking out what supports their case, which is what attorneys will do and what's they're paid to do. And Klyovkov on August 5th sounded pretty certain he was down to four board members. As of today, we have four board members. Not, I think we do, not maybe we do, not I got to see. He basically just says, as of today, we're down to four board members. We have four board members. It was like period, end quote. And, uh, you know, it made sense to everybody. Like, I didn't question it because, you know, you had prior to the defections of Oregon and Washington and the, the four corner schools, you know, you had USC and UCLA that were locked out of board meetings. Nobody raised an objection there. And so, you know, at the crux of this lawsuit is the idea, like, are they down to two members now? Do they have two board members or do they have 12? Do they go back to 12 board members after being all the way down to two and four? And it just seems weird to me that George Klyovkov all along, right, he vilified the L.A. schools when they left in the summer of 21. Oh, look at them. They're going, you know, hey, we're going to. And then when, when Colorado left, you know, we're going to upgrade, right? We're going to upgrade. They're gone, too. You could tell that Klyovkov was on the side of the Pac-12, as he should be as the commissioner of the Pac-12 conference. But suddenly, when it got down to Oregon State and Washington State being the last two members, the, the two loyal schools that had no other choice were stuck in the Pac-2, they, when it got down to those two schools, when Stanford and Cal left, George Klyovkov suddenly pivoted. He pivoted, did a 180-degree turn, and suddenly then was saying, you know, hey, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to govern in the best interest of the 12. Like, he wanted it to go back to 12. It was a puzzling reversal by George Klyovkov. His allegiance went to the schools that absolutely slayed him for some reason. Just a puzzling betrayal. But all of the evidence that was collected and, and put into 
into these exhibits today in court points in the same direction. Like there's nothing that says, well, maybe or should there be everything like the preponderance of the evidence that was submitted all points to the fact that Oregon State and Washington State should be governing what happens after August the 1st of 2024. And in fact, I would venture to say that if you're a Husky fan out there today, or you're a Duck fan out there today, or maybe you're a USC or UCLA fan out there today, or just a casual observer, that we all would sort of agree, like, you know, if Oregon State and Washington State want to stay in the conference, they should be the conference in the same way that, you know, the nine or ten members were going to be the conference without USC, UCLA, or maybe even without Colorado. Um, there were a lot of things that popped up in the exhibit, uh, aside from the text message from Klyovkov to me, which was weird, uh, but uh, but I understand why it was used. Um, the uh, exhibits 29 and 30 were interesting to me. Oregon and Washington, Oregon was exhibit 29 and Washington was exhibit 30. There were letters. One was from the Oregon General Counsel and the other was from Washington's president. They sent identical letters to the Pac-12, basically indicating that they knew they wouldn't have a vote, they knew they wouldn't be involved in discussions on matters that impacted the conference beyond their departure to the Big Ten. They were in lockstep on that. And the letters were identical, like word for word identical. I found that really interesting that you would have these two rival schools both departing for the Big Ten. I mean, it's obvious that they were sharing resources and sharing intel and basically sharing the idea of, like, here's how we're going to give notice. Here's what we're going to say. In fact, let's cut and paste it. It was cut and paste. I mean, it was, like, right down to the punctuation. And and so that was really interesting to see that Oregon and Washington were so in lockstep. And, by the way, in lockstep on, you know, on the day they left. And so it's evident that they were in contact with each other and talking with each other all the way up until those letters were sent. Uh, another interesting thing that jumped out of the filing today, just to save you the trouble of having to sort through it, the conference bylaws were in there. I sorted through the bylaws. It's really interesting. The bylaws themselves do not have any language that supports the claim that if the Pac-12 were reduced like to eight schools or six or four or two, that the rules for governance would change. The possibility of that happening was unfathomable and not even addressed in the bylaws. And so that feels sort of relevant to the case as well. And then there was a memo in there from the Pac-12's Vice President of Strategy, heavily redacted memo, but Eric Hardenberg, who is the VP of Strategy, writes this letter after Colorado leaves for the Big 12. And in the memo, he says, uh, you know, that the Pac-12 bylaws allow the board to issue penalties against members who withdraw before August 1st, 2024. Now, the board in the memo is said to be considering options and contemplating seeking considerable financial damages against the departing members and basically indicates that the nine members, the minute Colorado left in July, you remember that, it happened in mid-July, that the nine left-behind members at the time were considering like reducing the distributions to Colorado and UCLA and USC as punishment for their departures. I think that's really interesting, and that's new. Like, nobody had talked about that. I hadn't heard about that. And it sort of suggests 
that, you know, the conference, you know, was operating as a group of 12, right, before UCLA and USC left. After they left, they went, you know, we're a group of 10, issuing a joint statement on behalf of the 10. Remember that? And then they go down to nine, and they say, okay, as a nine, we're going to punish these others. Uh, We're looking into punishing these others with supplemental distributions to the remaining nine schools that really would have cut into what USC, UCLA, and Colorado would get it at the end of this next uh, year, at the end of the rainbow. And and so it just sort of points to the fact that all of these schools were willing to stab each other in the back, cut each other's throats, act like you know the schools that were left behind in the Pac-12, then Pac-10, then Pac-9, then Pac-4, they were all acting like, hey, we're doing the same thing, we're sort of operating in the same manner, with the same idea and the same objectives until it got down to two. When it got down to those poor two schools left behind, everybody turned on them. What is this case about? You tell me. 503-417-7575. Washington has not yet provided a single document of discovery per a source. They have not cooperated. They are not giving up their discovery. Um, uh, I think this case is about greed. I think that the defendants all want to go off into their respective school, you know, conferences that they've signed on with, and I think they want to destroy the Pac-12 and they want to part out all the financial elements. And uh, you know, I don't think they give a rip about Oregon State and Washington State. That if they did, they never would have left. I mean, frankly, let's think about it. Everybody's doing what's best for themselves to the detriment of everybody else. And, you know, I, I think it's become really interesting in the last 14 months to watch the academics who were so loyal, so together, so committed to each other, suddenly turning on each other in various stages and now ultimately getting back together as a group of 10 to fight against the two they left behind. It's just ridiculous. What is this about in your mind? 503-417-7575. I'll take your phone calls on that front. Also, I want to talk about the Blazers. They're opening a season. Steven, are you all fired up to see the Blazers start a season, or where do you stand on this? Yeah, fired up. Uh, I think with the Blazers, you know, they're not supposed to be very good. Uh, You look at their win total. You look at a lot of different power rankings around the the nation. Uh, A lot of them have the Blazers as the worst team in the NBA or close to that, but I think they're a good, young, solid, fun team, and I'm excited to see Scoot Henderson. I mean, in a lot of drafts, he's the number one overall pick. The Blazers got lucky. He fell to three. So I'm excited to watch Scoot, uh, see what he can do. I'm not expecting a lot, but uh, I'm excited for it. I'm excited too, but I am also thinking this could be a team that wins 26-27 games. That, that, that That's a reality, that this team may really struggle. So what is a victory? What is a successful season for the Blazers in your mind? Uh, I think it's it's all about development. It's all about Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, what you get out of them. Uh, if Anthony Simons can take the next step forward, I, I think it's still just all about development and figuring out who you can build with, whether that is a star player or role players around them. I, I think there's a lot of different options, but... The Blazers will end up making trades, I think, at some point and get more draft picks. So I, I think just for a win, John, it's you see development out of Shaden Sharp on the defensive side. He, he really struggled last season. You hope that he improves a little bit, his efficiency as well. And then with Scoot Henderson, just see how he kind of grasps his team. I, I think he's got the he's got the mentality to be that alpha guy, be the alpha dog on this team. Even though he is 19 years old, he's a rookie. I think he has the he has that kind of chops to. You know, be the guy, be the man, be the leader for the Blazers. So that's what I kind of want to see out of him this season. That, that that would be a W if by the end of the season you look at the Blazers roster and you say, all right, Scoot Henderson is definitely the leader and he could be that guy.
Here's what I want to see. Here's what I. Here's how I'll judge the Blazers' season. I'm not going to go on wins and losses because I think if you do that, you're going to say, you know, you can't set that as the primary objective because it just sets the season up for failure. And I don't want to start that way because I want to be fair to the organization. So I think you know, as a baseline, I want to see kids in the Portland metropolitan area and kids in the state of Oregon and Southern Washington wearing Blazers jerseys by the February trade deadline. Like, I don't want, because, you know, we all know there's there's front runners out there that are never going to, but I want some kids to be excited about what they see on the court. I want to I see some Shade and Sharp jerseys. I want to see some Scoot Henderson jerseys. Like, you know, you could tell, like, if you had been in a coma, you could tell if you got out of your coma, you climbed into your car, I would, I would advise against that, and you drove down the street and you saw a, you know, a pile of kids at a playground and you didn't see a single Blazers jersey, you would know this season had gone woefully sideways. And because you could always tell, like, you could take the temperature on how the Blazers are doing by, you know, not just by, you know, the season ticket numbers or by tuning into a game or looking at the standings. I can tell by driving down the street and seeing how many kids I see who are wearing T-shirts, caps, and jerseys who want to be associated with it. Well, and you're right about that because this team is a very young team with a lot of the better players still being young. So if you can get the kids on board now, like you're gonna, they're going to grow with them. And I think that's what you always want. You know, that's what I had when I was a kid. You know, I grew up, you know, around Clyde Drexler and all those guys, and then I ended up liking the Blazers because of it. So. Um, I know my son, he's one of those guys that's wearing jersey. He's wearing a Scoot Henderson jersey yesterday. So, uh, you know, he's ready to go. He's ready to watch the games. But, yeah, I'm with you. I hope there's a, hope there's a big fan base of kids, especially, that get on board with the Blazers this year. I could just remember even a few years ago, there was like, you know, I remember when the Blazers had, you know, it was several years ago, but the Blazers had Gerald Wallace, right? Remember they had, they had traded for him. And there, a, a new season started, and I remember going to Moda Center and – you know, for opening night and seeing a whole bunch of Gerald Wallace jerseys. And I was like, you know what, he wasn't a guy that you anticipated. He wasn't drafted by the Blazers, didn't anticipate that he was going to be around for a long time. Like, it was kind of a dicey jersey to buy if you were a parent. But, you know, we didn't mistake him for uh, for Dirty 30, Rasheed Wallace's jersey. But, you know, Gerald Wallace's jersey being around was like, hey, people are saying that's a guy I can get behind. So I want to see that vote from parents and Blazer fans and young kids. I want to see Scoot Henderson. I want to see Shaden Sharp. I want to see Amphrey Simons. You know, and probably we're going to see like if you go into the Goodwill, you might see some Damian Lillard jerseys showing up in the Goodwill all of a sudden because that's what happens. But you know, I, I want to see some of those new names on the back of jerseys, and I want to see kids walking and kind of walking around and uh, soaking it in that way. Um, look, I know this court stuff is inside baseball, but Stephen, let me ask you, just from your standpoint, you're good. You're you have a good view from twenty thousand feet on this kind of stuff. The fact that Washington has not provided a single document as part of discovery, despite the court order, like you know, the 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 plaintiffs would sure like to know what Washington was saying to the big time. Uh, the Big Ten, rather, at the same time that it was purporting to act in the best interest of the Pac-12. Like, there's there's some of that going on. What does it tell you, or what do you make of that? Is that a big deal or no? It makes it seem as if they're hiding something or that there's something they don't want to be seen. Like, that's that's my first initial reaction is when you don't want to give up things 
it's because you don't want people to see it. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's it's got to be all about money, John. I feel like that's all this is this has always been about TV. It's about TV and the money that you can get from the DV networks. And I feel like Washington's trying to save face somehow, some way. Something was said. There's some type of uh, receipt that they have that they don't want to be known, uh, whether it's to the George Klyovkov or whatever. And uh, that that would be my take. Is there's there's something out there that they don't want to be known, and so they're just not gonna they're not gonna give into it. Yeah, they're complaining that you know this is they're complaining about the timing of it, you know how how uh, rushed it is. But the Pac-12, you know, there's like 40 documents that the Pac-12 provided. George Klyovkov turned over his phone. Like you know, Anna Marie Kase, the president at Washington, she hasn't turned over her phone. She hasn't turned over her correspondence with the Big Ten conference or phone records. She hasn't done any of that. It goes back like the yeah. Tom, the Tom Brady Deflategate thing. He he smashed his phone and destroyed it because he didn't want it to be out there and be known. Like you're hiding something, right? <laughs> how did like Brady? It, how did Brady get out of that with everybody not going? Oh, you're a bad guy. I don't know because it's Tom Brady. He's good looking. He's married to a. He was married to a supermodel. How can you not like that guy? But I feel like that's what Washington is doing. It's just like, hey, we don't want something to be out. Let's just deny everything, and then hopefully it goes away. Maybe they know they're going to lose, or maybe they know a settlement will come, and they're delaying, delaying, delaying until the 11th hour, uh, You know, trying to find any way they possibly can to not turn over. Uh, that's discovery before they have to. And hopefully, um, like, strike up a deal or something, right? Like, yeah. So that it just isn't known by everybody. Yeah, the prob- that's that's it. I'm told mediation continues. The big dates that are ahead, um, November 14th is the big one. That is the court date in Colfax, Washington. Hell, maybe this radio show should be live from Colfax, Washington, from the courthouse. Maybe we'll get the honorable judge, uh, the folksy small-town judge on the radio show. Who knows? All right, coming up, we got to talk about this Portland State viral video. The new president at Portland State participated in a viral video, now viral video, uh, that is just uh, a really fun look. I have it on my Instagram if you want to see it. I tweeted it out yesterday. So did the NFL's Twitter account. So did uh, ESPN Sports Center. Everybody loves this video. It's done right, and I think it's really hopeful and promising. The president of Portland State, Ann Cudd, joining us next. Leave it here. Well, for years I've railed on the administration at Portland State for their failure to support athletics. And, and it goes beyond just support at Portland State. It, it extends to maybe a failure to understand or even respect athletics. I mean, if you think about it, it goes beyond funding. There is a division between the academic side of the university and the athletic side, and it shouldn't be that way. Uh, there is a brand that they share. There are goals and missions they share. And heck, those are athletes that are filling up some of those classrooms that are being taught in. And so I've always been disappointed to hear presidents over the years dismiss athletics or maybe not even understand it. Worse yet, Um, don't need to be, you know, don't need to be a a president that paints your face in the school colors and waves pom poms. But, you know, it would help if they just understood what the role of athletics on a campus could be. Um, and we see that at schools that are winning and schools that are successful. You see that synergy, that congruency of vision. The new president at Portland State is Ann Cudd. I have done so much research on President Cudd that it, I found out that you know her mother uh, was one of 18 children, and Ann and her siblings grew up on a horse farm in Ohio. She was an athlete in middle school, in high school, and into college. And this week, she popped up in the most fascinating way. 
Ann Cudd was the subject of one of those U2 viral videos. You know the ones we're talking about? Like when someone comes to you, like the server gives you your food in a restaurant, says enjoy your meal, and you go, you too, without thinking about it. Or they someone says happy birthday to you on your birthday, and you go, hey, you too, uh, without thinking about it. So there's kind of a, um, you know, it's a thing on social media. Well, um, a former Portland State Athletic Department staffer named Corey Hansen created a YouTube video, or he had the concept for it. He now works at Sport Oregon, does a terrific job in Sport Oregon, sort of promoting the mission of Sport Oregon, and and came up with this idea to do a YouTube video featuring Ann Cudd, the new president of Portland State. You may have seen it already. It went viral. The NFL retweeted it. ESPN retweeted it. Um, I put it on social media. I mean, it's out there. You've probably seen it. But it is a fantastic example of a little gesture and a little bit of synergy from an athletic administrator that can go a long way. Ann Cud is featured in the video. She's deadlifting with the football team, driving a sled, suiting up in a football uniform, basically um, showing that the president at Portland State understands, respects, and gets the value of athletics. It was This is new. Here to talk about it, President Ann Cud, president Portland State. I was really impressed with that video. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a creative idea that uh, our marketing folks came up with, and so I went with it. I, I, got, I have people asking me if you have eligibility now. So if you, uh, <laughs> if you feel, <laughs> do you have college eligibility? I know you're, you're a runner, right? You grew up on a farm. I, you were a runner. You run marathons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me a little I, bit about I actually, that. I, I was actually a four-sport athlete at college, at, at Swarthmore College, but that was before the NCAA even had women's teams. Wow. So I might have NCAA eligibility. But, yeah, I ran cross-country, and I ran track, and I also played soccer and basketball. Um, but uh, had a career-ending injury uh, as a basketball player, tore my ACL. Ooh. So that ended that, you know, late in my freshman season. And so then I, I concentrated on the running straight in the line <laughs> after that. Give me an um, idea. Give me an idea. You know, you, you obviously... Uh, seem to understand sports. You've played sports. Mm -hmm. You grew up mm -hmm. playing and competing. I love the story of you forming that high school cross country team. It's just a phenomenal uh -huh. story. But you know, what what did you get out of sports, and w what role do athletics play on a college campus? Hmm. Yeah. Well, what I got out of sports was just uh, you know a lot of camaraderie, uh, an ability to you know be fit, and and uh, I think at a time when, um, you know, many women and girls were not really uh, encouraged to be strong, physically strong and, and, and fit, um, you know, I was, uh, I was encouraged to do that by coaches and, and, and just by having the opportunity to compete. Um, and I think that's the other thing is I, I'm, I'm a very competitive person, and I think my, you know, competitive juices were definitely stoked in in athletics and um you know on the at the same time i really see competition in sport as as really a beautiful thing bringing out the best in everybody um at least when it when it's you know played fairly so so those are the things i gained i think from it um you know it, it it's a an important thing an important opportunity for for student athletes to have um and i think you know, at colleges and universities, 
young people have a chance to really um, make the most of their athletic talent and ability um, if if we have sports teams. So I think it gives the individuals a tremendous opportunity. But then also, you know, there's it's it's a way it's something to rally around on college campuses. It's something, you know, people love to watch sports. Um, Obviously, it's a big, huge um, enter- entertainment industry at this point, and uh, and so it, it's an opportunity for students to and and the whole community to come together and uh, enjoy the the university's team. I think it can help them, you know, with their brand and so forth. Um, and you know, I. I uh, at Everett, like I, I was at the University of Kansas for 25 years, um, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, you know, right. that's what we say to each other when yep. we meet other Jayhawks, right? And it's the sports team that really keeps that together. Um, you know, even, uh, well, at, at Pitt, it's, uh, you know, H2P, we say to each other, and then that's all really centers around the sports teams. Um, and here it's Go Vikes. Um so it, it's you know it's a, it's an identity that we can share and across all kinds of other kinds of difference. It's just amazing for me to hear that. It, and you know, no knock on the other presidents; they just maybe they didn't get it, maybe they didn't play sports. But it was for me part of it was just seeing a Portland State president aligning herself with you know the football program and really doing mm-hmm. it in a fun way. And that was mm-hmm. new. That was new and. You know, mm-hmm. I, and I guess, you know, I look at Colorado, you know, they, they will talk. And, of course, you know, they're a major college football program, but they'll talk about how mm-hmm. the success on the field will, you know, increase applications to the school and increase gift giving. Mm-hmm. Do you think a Big Sky program can do that as well? Um, um, you know, I, I don't really think we, we should rely on that. That would be a, a great plus. Um, but uh, I... You know, we are not in any of the Power Five uh, as, you know, Big Sky. Right. Um, I think of it as more of an opportunity for student-athletes to enjoy, you know, this opportunity to hone their skills and, and play on a team as they're going through college. I will say, though, actually, you know, um, and it's not so much a, a winning, but, but knowing that you can compete against, um, you know, fairly against uh, similarly competitive athletes is an opportunity that um, a lot of kids want as they get out of high school, and they want to continue that when they go to college. Um, so I do think that having sports programs enhances our enrollment, enhances um, our attractiveness to students. But in a way, it's it's like having um, other, you know, student activities that 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 are unique or that are um, very valuable to to students. So, it's it's a student activity in my view um, at this level. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, occasionally I think the 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 basketball team could get into the NCAA men's tournament, right, or women's tournament, um, which that's tremendous. Um, exposure and excitement um uh the volleyball team um volley i think women's volleyball is really gaining a lot of um uh you know exposure and 
Um, a lot of fans are coming. I, I've been going to watch that. And look at what happened at Nebraska, where yeah. they got 90-some-odd thousand wow. fans to come to the football stadium to watch the vo- women's volleyball game. I think that's just a tremendous story. Now, when Sport Oregon approaches you or you know the production company approaches you and they, they said they heard that you were on board, they did not expect you would be deadlifting and grimacing and making you know you really sold it you might have a career as an as an actress <laughs> well i was grimacing because it felt heavy <laughs> but it is true that the uh the the football players so they for those scenes they got the very biggest football players right the yeah. linemen from the offensive and defensive line and i am five foot two and about 105 pounds so that there couldn't be a bigger contrast in terms of size. But anyway, so the, the football players were, you know, kind of treating me gingerly, and they kept spotting. Like, they did have me bench pressing, but they were spotting so heavily that, you know, it was like I wasn't even lifting any weight. And they started doing that with the deadlift, and I said, look, guys, just back off. Let me do this myself so it looks realistic. And they just went nuts. They were like, whoa, you know, screaming. And so that's really pumped them up. And, and then I did it. And <laughs> they were very proud of me. I love it. Um, I appreciate you making time. Before I cut you loose, this just, you know, is there a, I know you're fairly new on the job. You've, you've got other things that you, you probably are focused on. But that, that football stadium becomes an ongoing question. What can a president mm-hmm. do? In, in that realm, or is there a short-term, long-term? Mm-hmm. Is your is your brain on that yet? Well, you know, I I think it's definitely um, an obstacle to our uh, really building a, a a big fan following. Not to have a, a location to play in Portland, and so my mind is on that. Um, you know, it's but it's also very expensive possibility so we'd have to have a lot of support um i think both philanthropic and probably city support um you know it's too bad that we can't play in providence park um that was a great location for us for a long time but um yeah so my uh, you know i'm um i'm looking around and 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 thinking about what might be an opportunity for us yeah i'm focused on providence park as well i I don't you know city-owned building it should mm-hmm. be available to the largest public institution in the in the area, and you know it's a shame that you guys got squeezed right. out of that building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, maybe there's an opportunity to uh, reopen that that discussion. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking about it, and you know I appreciate what you did. I think it was. Uh, I, I I know the athletes and the coaches saw it. I know those football players. Mm-hmm. Every summer we run a summer camp. My family runs a summer camp for special needs kids and typical kids. And those Portland State football mm-hmm. players show up every summer, four hours a day. Awesome. They show up early. They stay late. I recognize mm-hmm. a lot of the faces in that video. And, you know, mm-hmm. those, those are guys that are easy to get behind. Yeah, for sure. No, they're, they're really sweet. I, I was, they, they were very friendly and warm. So it was really fun to, to, to do that with them and for them. Are you, do you have a marathon on the horizon? Are you uh, running? How many have you run? Uh, I've run about fifteen of them. Um, no, not right <laughs> now. I'm uh, I'm not getting younger, um, but I 
you know, and and I'm pretty darn busy. I've yeah. been sprinting in the, you know, metaphorically sprinting in this in this job so far. So I hope I can uh, start literally running a little bit more. Well, um, maybe next year. President Cud, thank you so much, and thanks for doing that video. I think you know there are a lot of a lot of students out there that saw that, and uh, it's just such a such a it's a it's a small thing, but it's powerful and, and important. So mm-hmm. really appreciate Great. you well, and your time. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate your talking to me. Yep. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As Bruce Barnum said on yesterday's show, he said, Ann Cud is a stud. Portland State has a president that appears to give a rip about athletics. Better yet, appears to understand athletics. Maybe it was her upbringing on a farm. Uh, it Maybe it was the fact that uh, she participated as a four-sport athlete. I didn't know that until uh, this interview. But she gets it, and I think that is step one at Portland State. I've been here 20 years. I've not seen or heard from a Portland State president who seemed to understand the mission or the value of sports, and I thought she made some great points about where athletics fits in the larger campus mission. I want you to leave it here. we got big guests all week long on the Bald Face Truth. I like the uh, interview with the president at Portland State. Put a little heat on uh, Providence Park and the Timbers Ownership Group. Uh, Ann Cudd, the new president of Portland State, uh, she is um, she's going to get some things done. I, I realize that the job of a president is to manage the entire campus, and the athletic department is a very small part of it, but it's certainly nice to hear a president at Portland State talk about athletics seem to understand athletics and care about athletics. Uh, City of Portland owns Providence Park. Timbers ownership controls it, operates it. And I think that it would be a nice gesture by the Timbers organization, an organization that, frankly, let's let's face it, needs some goodwill. Okay? Got an owner who was uh, running an organization that became an embarrassment to the city. Would be nice to see the Timbers ownership group open its arms and go, hey, let's right another one of the wrongs that uh, we committed in the last decade or so, and let's let Portland State back into its home stadium. And if you're a city leader or if you're in Salem at the state capitol and you have some control or some authority, why wouldn't you take it upon yourself to make sure that a city-owned venue, Providence Park, owned by the city, was there to serve the city, was there to serve the largest university in the city, not just the MLS soccer club that is there. The, the Timbers systematically squeezed Portland State out of that building, gave them uh, rent increases that were ridiculous, rent control would have cracked down on them, gave them limited dates, limited windows, hey, you have to play your games on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. It's ridiculous uh, what they were asking Portland State to do. And eventually just systematically squeeze them out of the building in, in a way that um, is insidious. And so I think that it would be a nice gesture to see the Timbers organization earn some goodwill rather than radio show hosts have to talk about it like for weeks and weeks and months and months. Just do the right thing. Like let them back into the building. Give them a deal that's market value, fair deal. Let them play their football games next to their stadium in a publicly owned stadium. 
don't uh, squeeze them out. Uh, Stephen, what'd you think of the uh, new president at Portland State? Yeah, she seems to uh, get it from a sports perspective, and I think for you know for me, that's that's what I care about mostly uh, when I'm thinking about college college athletics or uh, you know college you know Portland State. I'm thinking of sports, and I want it to be. Wants to be lively, you know, in the Portland area when Portland State has a good football team like they do this season. So I liked what I heard. Um, now it's just, you know, it's one of those things. Our actions are louder than words, and we've kind of learned that with the Pac-12. We learned that with, you know, the Trailblazers and Joe Cronin, how they went about the Dame trade. Like, now I want to see, you know, some actions go into it and try to, you know, really invest into the sports programs in Portland State because, you know, for the lack of – you know, facilities that they have, they've put out some pretty good programs. And so I would love to see a little bit of investment there, and I think they would get paid off. And like she said, you know, when sports are better, you know, there's more talk around the town, there's more students that want to go to the games, more students that want to enroll into the university. So I I think it just adds up to be very successful. You put a little bit in, hopefully you can get a lot out of it. Yeah, get a lot out of that, and ultimately – uh, I think I think she has really good a uh, grounded uh, outlook on things because even when I asked the question about hey, Colorado is a great example. Colorado goes off, hires Deion Sanders, r- immediately gets a boost in gift giving, gets a boost in season ticket sales and merchandise and the social media following swells. Immediately, uh, you see enrollment is up like forty percent or applications for Colorado. Like kids who never wanted to go to Colorado are suddenly going, you know what? Um, I want to go to Colorado. That would be a good place for me to go to school. Why? Because Coach Prime's there and because the Colorado football team's good. It gives you an example in the Power Five level what a what a uh, addition like Coach Prime can do for your university, what sports can do for the rest of the university. It can become a huge revenue driver. Well, I ask her that question, and... You know, she could have easily said, yeah, that could be a great revenue. But she says, no, no, you know, we sh- that shouldn't be the goal. That You know, the goal should be, and when you look around the Big Sky Conference, it's not like outside of maybe Montana and Montana State. It's not like Sacramento State's success last year in football drove a bunch of enrollment to Sacramento State. It really just helped the brand of Sacramento State, and it helped people at Sacramento State, students that were going to school at Sacramento State, feel good about their school. Get behind a common cause. You know, their their program, I, I think they were 11-1 last year, 10-1, 11-1 last year, win a co-championship in the Big Sky Conference. Their coach goes off to uh, become the head coach at uh, Stanford. I mean, everybody who was going to school at Sacramento State was like, hey, I feel a little better about Sac State now, you know, as you, as you look at that. And so I think it was um, really interesting to kind of see that go down and to see that unfold the way it did at Sac State, it does at Montana. It does at Montana State. Eastern Washington has had some teams and some times that were good. I think the same could be said of Portland State. Now, it might just be that students on campus at Portland State feel a little better about Portland State. It might be that kids who are opting to uh, choose a community college or go to a four-year school suddenly go, you know what, I want to go to Portland State. Like, you know, it, it feels like more of a college. And there is an element to the sports program being passable or better that makes a college feel like a college. And and I speak from this standpoint of both a dad who did college tours and went to some schools and visited with my own daughter who is now at Oregon State, and there was just a different feel at some of the schools that had college programs that people felt good about, like Jonathan Smith's football program, versus maybe some others that didn't. And 
there's just a different feel. It was often brought up, uh, you know, when in selling those schools. So I think this is a healthy outlook that she has. This isn't an ends to a mean. This is part of the student experience. But it's just refreshing, especially after the last couple of presidents at Portland State who didn't probably know anything about sports. And you don't have to be somebody who played sports to care about sports. Michael Schill, who became the president at Oregon and then Northwestern, he confessed to me when he was at Oregon that he said he never played any sports. He didn't know anything about football. He didn't know the rules. I sat with him at the Stanford-Oregon game a couple of years ago, and he was like, you know, I'm just beginning to understand why they're calling timeout at the end of the half. And I'm just, you know, he was like talking earnestly about it. He cared about it. He didn't understand it all the way, but he cared about it. And so I think if you were a campus leader, particularly at a Power 5 school, but even at a Big Sky Conference school, if you can take an interest in your athletic department, you're not just taking an interest in a limited number of players that play for a team. You're not just taking an interest in all of the athletes that participate in your athletic department. You're taking an interest in your student body. Because those other students care about it because, you know, they're paying fees, they're rooting for those teams, they're wearing the logo of the school, they're going to school. It's in their face all day long. So it really does help to have a president like Ann Cudd now at Portland State who played four sports in high school. Who, uh, you know, she's not like diehard football fan or basketball fan, but she understands the importance of it. That's a big, big gain for Portland State to get somebody like her in that position. I hope she sticks around. I hope they keep her. All right, coming up, we're going to talk to Nick Aliotti, the former University of Oregon defensive coordinator, now with the Pac-12 Networks. I'm going to ask him what the heck is going on at USC. I'm going to ask him, Arizona and Oregon State, is it a trap game for the Beavers? We're going to talk about the Ducks as well, what happened in the Washington-Oregon game, and who he likes down the stretch. Nick Aliotti is an expert. Plus, we'll talk about sign stealing. How be- Is it a bigger advantage on the offensive side or the defensive side? Nick Aliotti will be with us to talk about all those things and more. I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Big week in the Pac-12 conference. Big week with Pac-12 football games. Obviously, uh, a lot to talk about. One of my favorite people that I have encountered in all of my years of covering college football and sports in general is our next guest, Coach Nick Aliotti. Longtime University of Oregon defensive coordinator, Pac-12 network analyst. He is a father. He is a grandfather. He is a husband. I don't know if he bats right-handed, left-handed in a softball game, baseball game. Are you a right-handed hitter, left-handed hitter? I'm a right-handed hitter and uh, should have been a left-handed hitter, but I was a right-handed hitter. You down the line faster if you're lefty. Yeah. Now that nowadays, you, you know, if you're growing up in today's world, you, you would have been a lefty. And, but back in your childhood, who who did you emulate? Who was your guy on the San Francisco Giants roster? Because I know you were a Giants fan. Well, absolutely. You know, it's it's uh, emulate. My guy was was Willie Mays. Actually, I had two guys. One was a Giant, Willie Mays, and the other one was a Yankee, Mickey Mantle. Those are my two favorite guys growing up. Uh, I was an infielder, John. Not a good, not a great left fielder like yourself, but I was an infielder, uh, mostly shortstop and second base. Uh, but those were my two heroes in baseball. 
And I used to follow baseball a lot more than I, I do today, although I do watch the major league playoffs and will watch the World Series. Nick Aliotti with us. Uh, uh, you know, Giants got to get back into the postseason, but let's talk college football. Let's go back to last weekend, first of all. Utah with a huge win over USC. Can we focus on that game? What What is going on with USC defensively in your mind? Well, I I think I went back and watched that game. In fact, I just watched it again today. Uh, you know, I just not very good gap control uh, with their D-line and their linebackers, uh, shoddy tackling, and I, I think one of the, the, the biggest uh, things that they're doing is too much on defense. So the combination of too much makes you not play fast, makes you not know all the time what you're supposed to do because when you really know what you're supposed to do, you can play super fast. So um, they say, Lincoln says, that if we say they're the same, uh, then we really don't know what we're looking at or, or, or we don't know much. Well, I'm, I'm giving him a pass by saying they're the same because they might be worse. Yeah. And I, I guess I wasn't surprised because I think Utah is really well coached. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. When you see... Kyle Whittingham, and you see Morgan Scally, and you see Andy Ludwig on the other side of the chess table, so to speak, or the chess board. I mean, that's a pretty good, pretty solid coaching staff. Those are three very great ball coaches. Uh, you know, they, they know who they are, John. They know they're going to be physical. They're going to be good at the line of scrimmage. They're going to, on offense, they're going to play with tight ends. On defense, and there's a team that, that, that does just a few things, although it looks like they do more. They're going to blitz you. They're going to play solid defense and play man-free, and they're going to play a, a cover two on, on third down for the most part. That's what they're doing. Uh, obviously, they have a few other things, but for the most part, that's, that's what they're doing. But And Andy Ludwig on offense, he's going to give you multiple personnel groupings. Uh, a lot of eye candy, a lot of motions, uh, a lot of trades and, and movement. So the combination of what they do offensively and defensively plays right to to the strength of what Utah is all about. And to me, uh, there's a there's a few really good coach teams in this league. So I don't want to say they're the best, but they're one of the best coach teams in this league without a doubt on both sides of the ball, including their leadership with Kyle. Rice-Eccles Stadium, that'll be the site Saturday. Oregon's going into that place. I think it's one of the toughest places to play, just like Autzen Stadium, maybe maybe Reeser Stadium in recent years. Um, you've coached there. You've seen that place. What is it about going to the altitude or going into that red blender that makes it difficult? I think you hit on the nose. Uh, they love their football. Uh, I would say Salt Lake. Uh, and, and Oregon State's starting to be that way too. But Salt Lake and uh, and playing at Austin and Oregon, those two have the two best home crowd advantages, I think, week in and week out. They're packed. 
both places all the time, and their students and their fans get into it, and they get loud, and they understand the game. So it's, it's a tough place to play, a very tough place to play, uh, just like Austin is. Nick Aliotti is with us. Give me an idea. Oregon going to Utah. What do you think of that matchup? I, I say it's a, a very, very tough game, but I think advantage Oregon, and not because I have any loyalty or coached at Oregon. To me, Oregon is the most complete team in this league, and I mean it because of this. They run the ball and throw the ball almost 50-50 as far as their statistics. They're the top offense in the in, in Maybe the country. I know they're up there. Uh, I don't always look into the stats, but I know they're up there. They, they're the, one of the top scoring offenses. They're playing good defense. And I just don't think that Bryson Barnes, although I love what the kid stands for, uh, you know, pig farming and all that kind of stuff, a walk-on and all the stuff that he does, I just don't think that Utah has enough offense to match Oregon. But defensively, they certainly do. Both defenses will play well, but I think Oregon will have a little bit more offense and should have an easier time stopping Utah than Utah will stop in Oregon. I I look at the Oregon season, and of course that Washington game is their blemish. Uh, I got to know what you thought of the strategy going forward on fourth. um, You know, I know you're an aggressive guy, but... uh, do you think Dan Lanning does calls the game the same way if he can go back, or do you think he calls it a little differently? Or what did you make of that? Okay, this is not second guessing because I was saying it at the time. Right, right. First of all, I would have kicked the field goal at the end of the half, without a doubt. Go in down by one, getting the ball. Okay. Secondly, I would have kicked the next field goal when I had a chance, which no, any of those three points would have been huge. The last one going for on fourth and three, Nick Galliotti would never do that. He would punt. They had no timeouts at being Washington. And I got to say, hey, defense, big game. If there's ever a time, I know, I know what Washington has on offense. I know what Dan Lanning was thinking. Hey, if we get the first down, we end it here. But I'm not that guy. I, I play more by the book or what I think. Uh, Take analytics, you could, use, you could flush those down the toilet, okay? I go by gut and by feel and by how the game's going. Uh, Oregon had momentum. So I'm not second-guessing Coach Lanning. I think he's an excellent coach. He's doing a great job. But I would have kicked both field goals, and I would have punted it. That's just me. Conversely, when you look at it, Oregon's lost four games under Dan Lanning. One was to Georgia. That was a a blowout. Take that out of there. The other three games that they lost, all three of them, they went for on fourth down in the fourth quarter in their own territory and ended up, ended up losing the game. So, uh, and the Washington game the first time might not have been their own territory. It might have been one where they couldn't kick the field or punted it, or punted it. But all three of those games were losses. There are only three losses, really, when you look at it. Take Georgia out of it. Yeah, you're right. In the Washington game last year, they went for it on fourth and one from their own 29. I mean, that's that's crazy. 
uh, in that situation, and they end up barely losing that game. Nick Eliotti is with us, Pac-12 Network analyst. Um, a lot of people forgetting about Oregon State when they talk about, you know, is it going to be Washington? Is it going to be Oregon? Utah gets talked about. Oregon State flying under the radar. What do you see the Beavers doing? And, you know, are they as good as they were a year ago? What do you see when you look at that team? Don't fall asleep on the Beavers. I, I think there's, in my mind, there's four true teams that can still win this whole thing. And not in any order, but Washington, Oregon, Utah, or Oregon State. I really believe in those four teams. And if I had to put a fifth in there, it'd be UCLA because I believe in Chip Kelly. Although their quarterback issues and Utah's quarterback issues are a little bit different. But we're talking about Oregon State. Love what they do offensively. Love it. Hardball runs, play action, quick little receivers getting down the field, good on special teams, play tough, play hard. They love the game. They're into it for all the right reasons. I don't know and I don't think that their defense is as good as it was last year. It's not bad, but I don't think that it's as good as the defense they had last year because last year they had the two special corners. Uh, I can't think of the names right now, but I know they had two really good corners that really helped them load the box and be able to play man. But they're very good, and they can win this whole thing. I, I really think whoever wins the Civil War will play in the championship game probably against Washington. Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty safe uh, estimation. I love that. Nick Eliotti with us. Um, all right, Arizona, Tucson's a tough place to play. Beavers are going there. Jed Fish's team is better on defense than they were a year ago. Offensively, they seem to have found something with a young quarterback. You know, How much of a trap game does that feel like for Oregon State traveling to Tucson? Yeah, you know, uh, no disrespect, I hate trap game because – yeah. If you're, but I know what you mean, John. If you're truly a competitor, you're playing a game on. You get one each Saturday, one a week. You better be ready to go down and play Arizona because Arizona, Arizona can throw the ball all over the park, and they are playing better defense. This Fafita kid is special. He can throw it, and he can hurt you with his legs. And those kind of quarterbacks are scary to me. They run the ball. Uh, I want to say with Campbell. They have another kid. Uh, they lose me right now, but they run the ball quite well, and they are playing better defense. Now, their last two wins, no, let me take it back. Their last two games were against passing teams, in my opinion, USC and uh, Washington State. Defensively, against Oregon State, they're facing a different type of offense, so we're going to find out if they can defend both because this Oregon State team will come after you running that ball down the O. Now, uh, I think Jonathan is one of the better coaches in the league. I think he'll have his team ready. I think they got to know what's at stake. They have the one loss. Uh, they're right in the thick of things. Don't lose one that you should win, and I expect Oregon State to win, but it'll be tougher than everybody thinks down there in Tucson. Coach, this Michigan sign-stealing thing has caused a lot of discussion. And there's, I think, a lot of us that, you know, maybe assumed that coaches and teams were looking across the field trying to steal signs but didn't know 
that, you know, maybe a coaching staff would have a guy in the stands, allegedly, filming and then going to a road games and trying to steal signs and decipher it. G- give me an idea. How much of an advantage does that create if I can advance scout you and film your, you know, your signs on the sideline? Well, the sign thing, first of all, it's illegal. Uh, so really, you shouldn't break the rules. But as far as stealing signs, I yawn at that. Uh, stealing what the other people do and how they play the game and being there in person and watching your opponent and, and things like that, uh, to me, that gives you much more. But the, the sign thing, I always used to think, John, and, and yeah, it helps a little bit. I'm not naive, but I used to think about this. If I call a defensive play and I signal it, they're calling an offensive play. The communication from the coach to the player to all the other players to get all that done, I really don't see that as a big deal stealing signs, whether it's, again, I said in person is illegal, but stealing signs, that doesn't bother me at all. It really doesn't. I think it might give you a little bit but not enough, you still got to block and tackle and run the plays, get all that stuff done. Would it be a bigger advantage on the defensive side or offensive side? Meaning, you know, if I'm your opponent and I know that you're in man coverage or zone coverage, bigger advantage there? I, I, I have a hard time thinking you could steal much on the offensive side, but more on the defensive side. Yes. I mean, like I said, there's a little bit there because if you know they're playing man and you're for sure they're playing man. uh, But, I mean, we had about – I'm just trying to think back. We had about five or six different man coverages. Mm -hmm. So what what man is it? Is it two man? Is it four man? Is it uh, what we used to call five, which was a man? Is it man free? Is it blitz man? Uh, But knowing that it's man – certainly helps as opposed to knowing it might be zone, okay? Uh, but, and I'm not naive about this, but not enough that I'd be going crazy over this. The fact that the guy was at the stadiums, that's terrible, that's bad, that's a problem. But the fact that he was just was stealing signs, that's a whole other issue. doesn't bother me. Play football. You still got to block and tackle me. That's right. I mean, I- yeah. It, isn't like, it isn't like baseball where I know a fastball is coming, you know, like the Astros and those guys, supposedly. <laughs> I, think that's yeah. a, I, I, think, I, I think that's an advantage, but if you know I'm running the sweep, well, how am I blocking the sweep? Am I pulling two guys? Am I, am I cracking down on you? I can go on and on. Uh, I think you got my point. Did you guys ever, because I know in the Chip Kelly era, you know, you had signs up there, you had dummy signs. Uh, half of it didn't mean anything. It was A lot of it was verbal on the offensive side. Like, how, how involved were you in kind of disguising things during that era? We played against them every day in practice. And they'd have these signs and these signals and stuff. And I'll tell you, to this day, I have no clue what any of that stuff meant. I mean, absolutely, you just, absolutely nothing. I can't tell you what a picture of Joey Harrington or, or whoever else they had, uh, what any of that stuff meant. I, I was too busy doing my thing. What personnel's in? What are we doing? Uh, what's the down and distance? Where's the ball? 
maybe I'm not as good as some of these other guys, but I didn't worry about the signs. I didn't worry about the signals. All I cared about was the players. Line up, read your keys, play football, tackle, get off blocks. You did, I think, the best job of any defensive coordinator in the history of college football in adjusting to pace. You went from calling it one way and having your personnel guys on the field all the time to having to adjust to a coach that wanted to run 85 to 100 plays a game. Like, you know, Chip wanted the ball and he wanted to play fast, and that sometimes meant that your guys were on the sideline for 90 seconds. And, you know, if you can think back to that time, Coach, like was how much of a conscious adjustment did you have to make or did it take you having to see a couple games and you went, oh, holy hell, like I, I'm going to have to play more guys? Well, how did that go? No. We knew right away, you know, at first, when Chip was the coordinator, I was all, you know, I'll use the word peed off, pissed off at, at Bilotti. I mean, how do we practice? How do we communicate with our guys? He's going so fast, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, I was, I was complaining. But then I said, you know what? This is going to make me better and make us better. We're going to do signals in one motion, two at most, and that's going to be the whole defense, okay? And now tempo became so normal for us in a game, you couldn't go fast enough in a game because in practice we would be running back from the last play and the ball was almost snapped. That's the way Chip did it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding yeah. you. And you see, it, and the other thing it did was it made my second-string guys, because we would uh, adjust like a hockey team, you know, three guys here, three guys there, a couple linebackers, a secondary guy, blah, blah, blah. We would adjust like a hockey team. So what happened is my second-team guys got more reps in practice, which made them better players which gave me more confidence that they knew what they were doing, which made them more engaged into the game plan. Because back in the day, it was first team and a few other guys. But now I had more guys involved. And the next year, if a guy got hurt, didn't have to worry about it because that other guy had a lot of snaps. Or the following year, when you lost starters, you really didn't lose starters. You might have lost a great player in name, but you had a guy that was capable to fill in that position. So it made me a better coach, and we really adjusted uh, quite quickly after Coach Al was bitching and moaning for about the first <laughs> two weeks of practice. Chip's such an interesting guy. You know, uh, Wilner and I had him on for a podcast interview. He's got great ideas. You know, he's he's into sleep and all that and how you sleep better and why you shouldn't have your phone next to your nightstand and all of that stuff. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk with him. Uh, Nick Aliotti with us, uh, former Oregon defensive coordinator. All right, before I, before I let you go, um, Washington State. Uh, I got a lot of Washington State listeners who want to know what is going on with that team. They looked really good at 4-0. They've now lost three straight, and I get it. They're playing some good teams, but do you see anything different happening with Washington State that you can quantify or talk about? Uh, not really, but what I have seen with Washington State is the same thing, and I didn't think I would see it as much with Dickert as I did with my good friend and rest in peace, Mike Leach. 
my point being this. They don't run the ball. If you don't run the ball, I don't have to defend the run. When they played UCLA, they ran the ball, don't count quarterback scrambles, 12 times in the game. 12. I counted them. You can't win a championship, in my opinion, if you don't run the ball because teams just start playing the pass and say, dare you to run. And if you don't run the ball, you're not physical on offense and you're not physical on defense. You could say you are, and you could say these sideline passes and all these little bubble screens are like a run, but they're not like a run because there's no physicality to those plays. So I don't know if I see a lot different. I thought they played a pretty good game against Oregon. I think Cam Ward's a very good player. I think they have some good receivers. Oregon's darn good. They're really good. But I don't think they, they, they're physical enough because they don't threaten you with the run, and therefore they don't practice it or see it enough. So that's what I think is going on with Washington State. All right. That's great stuff. All right, Coach, I appreciate you joining us. We love having you on, getting your expertise. And uh, take care of your voice. You're in midseason form with your voice right now. But take care I of it. I know. I apologize. No, don't apologize. I, it's you. I apologize, to your, I apologize to your listeners. I don't even yell anymore. Maybe at my dogs. Because <laughs> uh, my grandkids are older now, and they yeah. actually listen to us. They're good. So, uh, John, I always enjoy it. Anytime. Hope your family and Anna are doing well. We're all well, and uh, I, uh, every time we uh, we make homemade pasta, I think about you, and I think, you know what, we ought to get a dinner with Nick Aliotti. That's what we need. Got to be red. <laughs> hey, what, what game do you have? Are you on a game this weekend, or where are you? We're at, we're at Cal, USC Cal. Ooh, that should be good. You want to see what happens yeah, there? Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I don't Cause, know if... Cause, uh, go well, ahead. We'll find out. Like, you know, we're going to find out if those USC kids want to compete or not. I don't think they're very tough. And I think Cal, a little better on offense, not as good on defense as they've been historically. No, I agree. And, but, but, and I don't know what Lincoln Riley has, and I hope he's okay. But for a head coach to miss two practices in a row, uh, like I said, I. First and foremost, I hope he's okay. That's saying pneumonia. He's back today. They're saying pneumonia. So he's apparently okay. But I don't know how much of that pneumonia was brought on by losing. I coached 40 years. I never missed a practice. Amen. I think I had pneumonia sometimes. And maybe that's <laughs> self-serving. But no. my God, you, you show up. Yep. All right. All right. Take care, Coach. Thank you. Appreciate you. See you, John. Bye. There goes Nick Aliotti. One of a kind. One of one, Nick Aliotti. I've got some thoughts uh, in the wake of that. I bet you do, too. 503-417-7575 is the number. What did you hear there from Nick Aliotti that jumped out at you? I'll give you my things next. 503-417-7575 is the number. I want you to tell me, what did you hear from Coach Nick Aliotti in that last segment? Uh, in looking at Oregon State's weekend, something has become abundantly clear, and it became so clear to me in talking with Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon defensive coordinator, 
that, you know, the Oregon State, it's not the Oregon State run game. It's not the Oregon State pass game. It's not Oregon State's toughness. I don't worry about any of those things when it comes to Jonathan Smith's team. The fundamental question for Oregon State is they go to Tucson on Saturday to play a very important game is does Oregon State understand what's at stake? That's it. Period. End stop. Do the Beavers understand what's at stake? Because you do hear people bring up, oh, it's a trap game. They're going to Tucson. Game's in the middle of the desert. Oh, it's Arizona. It's not a rivalry game. In fact, this is the last time Oregon State and and Arizona will play for the foreseeable future, given that they're going in different directions, different conferences. So the question becomes, does Oregon State, who already has one loss this season, do the Beavers understand what's at stake? I think it's a great starting point for the conversation about the game that will be played on Saturday because we can focus all we want on the idea that, you know, hey, they're coming off a bye week. It's not Washington. It's not Oregon. Maybe the emotional uh, element that you would normally see from a football team. How Nick Aliotti said it. You get one game a week. You get 12 of these in the regular season, and then they're gone. And maybe it's a little bit old school thinking. I know it's not the transfer portal. It's not NIL. But if Oregon State really wants to matter in this final Pac-12 as we know it season, uh, Oregon State's fighting for relevancy, fighting for survival in a courtroom, trying to get, you know, harvest the assets of the conference, trying to find out where they're going to play next year, who they're going to play next year. But this football team on the field has to know what's at stake. So I want to lay this out. What's at stake for Oregon State? It's not just, hey, can they go 11-1 and this season and get to Las Vegas and play for a conference championship? It's not just that. It's not just, hey, um, you know, can they win a game in Arizona and stay on pace to be a team that could contend for a conference champion? It's not just that either. What's at stake for Oregon State is bigger than maybe any other program outside of Washington State in the conference. And frankly, the Beavers have a better shot than Washington State, given their record, to get to Vegas. What's at stake for the Beavers is a statement that they could make nationally to every conference in the Power Five that left them out, to every fan who doesn't really understand the uh, geography of the Pacific Northwest or the history and the brands involved in the Pac-12 conference, They could make a statement about them belonging, make a statement about the travesty that it is to get left behind, make a statement about this season and this team. Jonathan Smith will tell you he wants to live in the now. He wants this team not focused on all that other stuff, just focused on what they can control this season. Well, I'll tell you, outside of, you know, that other stuff that is going on, what's at stake for Oregon State on Saturday is huge. It's a Super Bowl of of stakes. And so I'm almost embarrassed to to ask the question like is it a trap game? But we do that because we see Arizona, we see a trip on the road to Tucson, we see a game coming out of a bye week, we see it's not Oregon or Washington. And so we go, hey, you know, is it possible Oregon State could overlook this opportunity? The Beavers should never overlook an opportunity. The Beavers should be flying around like nobody else in the Pac-12 conference. Because they're playing with a chip on their shoulder. They're playing not just for this season, not just for each other, not just for 2023 and what this season record will be. The Beavers are playing for their future. 
They're fighting for survival. The stakes are sky high for Oregon State. And, you know, it, it, and I will be very disappointed if the Beavers don't show up to play every single game. If somebody beats them, if somebody's just better, so be it. But Oregon State should never walk into a game and have anybody say, I don't know if they were ready to play. Because the stakes for Oregon State are higher than anybody else in the Pac-12 conference right now. Every snap matters for the Beavers. I want to take your phone calls. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Let's go right out to the uh, out of the phone lines. Gary is on line one. Go ahead, Gary. Hey, John. Go Ducks. Uh, one of the things about college football is that uh, respect is earned. Is earned. It's not given. And uh, the Ducks have a huge opportunity to get some respect because the only way you get respect is by winning. Um, we had an opportunity up at uh, Washington. We blew it. Uh, and that goes to the head coach. The head coach, he earns his pay basically in the last two minutes of the game when the game is decided because everything else is done by his, his assistants. So uh, the, the, uh, the jury's still out on that. I might push back a little bit on he's only coaching or managing until the last two minutes. I see Dan Lanning doing a lot of coaching, making a lot of decisions during the game. But I will agree with Gary on this. Like, you know, the focus for Oregon now, this entire season, becomes about getting to Las Vegas and redeeming what happened in Week 7 in Seattle. Oregon was the better team. Oregon outgained Washington. It outplayed Washington. It outfirst-downed Washington. It, you know, it, it didn't outscore Washington. And that was a problem. And Dan Lanning, if you could go back, probably would take some points, take some field goals, at least one of them. But I think Oregon's entire existence right now, including this week's game at Utah, becomes about this arc, this story that you have in every season. Now, every football season has an arc to the story. And Oregon's story is a lot like, you know, it's a three-act play, right? Act one, they came out, they beat the pants off Portland State, they embarrassed Hawaii, they went to Te- Lubbock, Texas and won a football game, learned a lot about themselves, showed some medal. But we look at Oregon and we go, wow, this, is, this might be the most balanced, good team in college football. Like, they've got it on both sides of the ball. They can run, they can pass, they're very good. I love their defensive backs. Their defensive line has improved. They're better defensively this year than they were a year ago. Like, they, Oregon has every component of a team that could make the college football playoff. Except, in Act 2 of this play, they have an unfortunate result on the road against one of their rivals at Husky Stadium in which they don't close the deal. They don't get it done. They lose. And so, here we go. As we head to the third act of this great play, you have Oregon going to Rice-Eccles Stadium... The site two years ago of an absolute ambush where they got embarrassed by the Utes, and now they're going in seeking uh, to stay on the path to get back to Las Vegas. Like, it's got all of the elements of a great drama, and I love it for that reason. Dan Lanning, a chance to redeem himself, and Bo Nix, a chance to to go into Utah and, and walk out with a good taste in his mouth, uh, like some other quarterbacks haven't had in recent years for Oregon. It's a huge opportunity, and then it will be followed by, what, games with USC, games against Oregon State. Like, there will be other challenges, but everything now for Dan Lanning and this Oregon team, given that they gave up their mulligan in Seattle uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, everything now becomes about getting 
to Las Vegas playing for the championship. It's, again, every snap, every possession, every game, an opportunity for Oregon to redeem itself and close the loop on that arc. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to the Pac-12 in the bigger picture. We're like, you know, less than a week away from the initial rankings for the college football playoff coming out. And, you know, there's some things developing outside of the control of the Pac-12 that may affect their playoff implications. You've got Florida State sitting there, uh, you know, undefeated and a chance to go undefeated. And how do you keep an undefeated Florida State team out of the college football playoff Final Four in a 14 playoff? And you've got Oklahoma with a potential to go undefeated in a really weak conference. But if they're undefeated, how do you as a selection committee keep Oklahoma out? And if those two things happen and you get a Big Ten champion who's sitting there looking better than the Pac-12's champion and you get an SEC champion who's sitting there looking better than the Pac-12's champion, let's say you have Georgia sitting there undefeated as well, all of a sudden the Pac-12 may find itself left out of the playoff. Like, you can't control that. But what Oregon can control going down the stretch here is it can control how it shows up to play. And it's going into a lion's den. It's going into an absolute blender of an experience, a place that has been hostile and a place that has exposed some other Oregon teams. I love this from the standpoint of it's going to be great theater. It's going to give us an opportunity to see how worthy Oregon is of being called a potential conference champion. But, you know, people always say, like, where does the championship go? This championship goes through Salt Lake City. You've got to beat Utah. You've got to, you know, if you're going to come at the king, like Omar said, you you best not miss. And you have a chance, just like USC did, to go play against Kyle Whittingham in Utah and see what, what you're made of. Now, I like Oregon in this game. I'm going to pick them to win. I don't know, uh, you know, if they cover a spread, I think it's a lot of points. But I think Oregon can go into Salt Lake City and win. I just hope Oregon knows that getting to Las Vegas doesn't happen if you don't win in Salt Lake City. Again, where's the gateway to the Pac-12 championship? It's right there in Utah at Rice-Eccles Stadium. Steven, what did you hear from Nick Aliotti? What's your takeaway there? Yeah, there was a lot of takeaways. Uh, I love the fact that at the end he said he's never missed a practice. Uh, he's probably had pneumonia. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, well, little, you took a shot at Lincoln Riley, didn't you? A little shot there. I, I took away that he doesn't think USC is very good because he named off the four teams he thinks can win the Pac-12, and then he put a fifth in there as UCLA. There's no USC involved. Uh, I thought that was interesting, even though they only have the one loss, then they lost at the, at the buzzer to Utah. I think that he hit on Oregon State, and he talked about their – defense. And that's the one thing that worries me, John. We talk about this game against Arizona, and, and I don't think Arizona's going to sneak up on Oregon State. The spread says there's not going to. It's a three-and-a-half, four-point spread. It's a short spread. But you talk about the Oregon State defense. It's been poor on the road this season. And Aliota mm-hmm. even said, you know, the defense is not as good as it was last season because they lost those two cornerbacks, Alex Austin, Rajon Wright, and they can't go man-to-man. Is that going to rear its ugly head this week, this Saturday against Arizona? I, I hope it doesn't. But I do have questions about that. You know, Arizona's offense has been cooking the last couple of games, and that Oregon State defense needs to show up on Saturday to win that game. I, I don't. The offense has been great. The offense is better than I thought it would be the last couple of weeks. But the defense, especially on the road, has not been very good. It's been great at Reeser on the road. It's been a question mark. He Aliotti kind of alluded to that. I thought that was a big. Uh, Big takeaway I took away from that one. They've got to play well. They've got to run the football. They've got to play better defense. And 
Jed Fish is going to throw it at him. I mean, you know, he's got a good young quarterback. There's been some talk about him bringing Jaden Delora back to play this week. I think that'd be an absolute mistake. How can you, you know, you can't trust Delora. I mean, you can't trust him on game day. You can't trust him away from the program. And so I, I just don't see any way that you take what's working for you and mess with it. He's got a really good young quarterback. He's got a better defense. It's gonna. I think Oregon State's going to have its hands full. We'll talk to Jonathan Smith about that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Punch it audio coming up. I want you to leave it here. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour on tomorrow's show. It will be a lot of fun uh, tomorrow on the program. Dan Lanning will be with us. He will be uh, here to talk about uh, Oregon's game at Utah. On Friday, Kirk Herbstreet, ESPN's College Game Day. Also on Amazon on Thursday night. He's got the Thursday night game. Friday, he'll be with us on this show. Uh, Why don't you hear for all of it among uh, other guests? Uh, Now we're going to play some uh, Punch It Audio. We have the best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, the Arizona Diamondbacks are going to the World Series. They beat the Phillies. Here's how it sounded. Punch it. Seawall to strike away. Here it comes. Cave, a fly ball to right field. Over is Carroll. He's got it. And the Arizona Diamondbacks are headed to the World Series. The Diamondbacks have won the National League pennant. And the Fall Classic will return to the desert for the first time in 22 years. Diamondbacks Rangers in the World Series. I'm hearing a lot of belly aching from media members who sound suspiciously like media companies who are saying, oh, this is small market on small market. I don't I don't buy that. Give me a great series. These are professional athletes who are playing at the highest level. And by the way, knocking the Phillies out with your back against the wall, that's uh, that's nothing to be ashamed of. I, I'd like to see the Arizona Diamondbacks down the stretch, red hot, especially in game six and seven. Let's, uh, let's not declare this series a dud before it's a dud. All right? If it's a dud, we'll call it that. But let's give the Rangers and the Diamondbacks an opportunity to show us that, hey, these are the two best teams who earned their way there. Emmanuel Akko talking about uh, Caleb Williams says he should consider sitting out the rest of the season. Here's Acho. Punch it. Many people are saying why Caleb Williams shouldn't, shouldn't consider sitting out. They point to three reasons. Selfishness, quitting on the team, loyalty. Well, let me undress all of these arguments. Number one, it would be selfish. America, I simply ask you to recalibrate your brain. The college football we fell in love with is not the college football that is today. Everybody is selfish. As the transport portal expanded, so did selfishness. What was it when Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma before the Alamo Bowl to go to USC? What was it when Caleb Williams left Oklahoma? What was it when Jordan Addison, Belindikoff winner at Pittsburgh, left that team to go to USC? It was selfish. Duh, that's what high-level athletes and coaches do. As for quitting on the team, I won't deny that. He is quitting on the team, but he's committing to his family and his future. Before the 2020 season, LSU were reigning national champs. Jamar Chase, he had a decision to make. Could he play his third year, or could he sit out the entirety of the season? What did Jamar Chase choose to do? 
He chose to sit out the entirety of the season. Micah Parsons, he had a decision to make. What did Micah Parsons choose to do? They wanted to sit out the season because it was a COVID year. They wanted to put their health and their family first. All I'm saying Caleb Williams to do is commit to his birth family over his adopted family. I'm sorry, get mad at me. And lastly, you want to talk about loyalty. The only person Caleb Williams in my mind needs to be loyal to is to Lincoln Riley. Lincoln Riley recruited him. Lincoln Riley I'm going to stop him right there. Emmanuel Acho, what are you talking about? The only person he should be loyal to is the guy who just sat out two practices with pneumonia? The weird part is Acho was a pro also. Like, to say you, just because you didn't win the Heisman or you have no chance to make the cultural playoff, you should sit out, it's just a weird take to me. I, I don't get it. I think... Uh... I think he's just doing it to try to get us to talk about him. So mission accomplished. His, his tweet did get 16 million views. Yeah, by the way. It, mission accomplished. I, I just, I, I disagree with him in a number of ways, but this is the one that I'm going to pick. Okay, Can I, I could go 40 different directions on this. The one I'm going to pick is the rest of Caleb Williams' teammates decided that Caleb Williams was going to be at quarterback and made a decision that I'm going to play alongside that guy at USC. You could remove a number of other players from the USC lineup and say that it wouldn't have the impact that removing Caleb Williams would. There is a responsibility that you take on when you accept, hey, I'm going to come to USC, I'm going to transfer there, I'm going to come play for Lincoln Riley, I'm going to reap the benefits of name image likeness, I'm going to reap the benefits of all the, uh, all the L.A. media market. There's a responsibility that comes with that. There's also some accountability that comes with that. And if you quit on your team, that will follow you into the NFL, and it will tell me something about you. Now, this is not, not I'm not talking about a guy who says, hey, I'm not going to play in the Alamo Bowl because I don't want to get hurt and I'm going to get drafted. That's a different conversation. But a player who would say midseason, you know what? Since we don't have a chance to win the national championship, I'm raising my hand. I'm bowing out. I would be worried about that guy as a competitor. And if I were NFL team, I would be going, wait a minute. What are we drafting? I think he's a great player. I hope he decides to play because great players, what do they do? They play, they compete. LeBron James played only 29 minutes last night in the Lakers loss. Says he's, uh, he's following the rules. Punch it. I mean, I always want to be on the floor. Um, Especially when you got an opportunity to, you know, win a game or you feel like you can make an impact. But um, I guess there's a system in place, and you know, gotta follow it. Yeah, he's following the rules. He says, following the rules. Decided that you know he's got to play because they want uh, they want him to play, and the league says star players can't sit out. No load management. Uh, LeBron checking the box, so to speak. I think we're going to see more of that this NBA season. Yeah, you have to play 65 games to be all NBA or anything like that. So, and that's in a lot of contracts. So you'll see a lot of this where we load management in the game. A lot of that going on. Uh, more ahead. Anna's going to pop in. We'll do the 5 at 5. Plus, uh, Jonathan Smith coming up at 520. Want you here for all of it. You've got the bald-faced truth on Friday's show, Kirk Street, Thursday's show, Dan Lanning. Be here for all of it. Anna has stepped into the studio. She is. Uh, she was with the kids a little bit ago at one of those uh, jump-around places. What is that thing called? A trampoline park? 
jump around place? Yeah, I like jump around place. Do you see? I, very direct. I say it very little, literally. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> A jump around place. Mm-hmm. They just go and jump around. Those trampoline parks are fascinating to me. Yeah. I think if I were their age, I would love it. But as a parent, I don't really. Oh, yeah, it gives you a heart attack. I mean, you go, and it's like you're signing the 37-page liability waiver, you know? Like, you can't sue us for anything. We should be handing those waivers out at our house. Mm-hmm. Yep, that would be good. Everywhere I go. So you got to sign this. You're going to hang out with me. you going to have coffee with me, Stephen. you got to sign this waiver. Sorry. No liability. The Kinzano we're, version we're of, off the hook. of the NDA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're off the hook. Damn it. Uh, you've got a great five at five. We have Jonathan Smith coming up at 520. So you're going to rip through the five biggest stories in sports. And that gives you about three minutes per story. Okay. We're going to linger and we're going to chatter a little bit about one or two. That means you got to move faster on another one. Okay. Simple math. Okay. Okay. Limited window. Leading right into Jonathan Smith's interview. Let's see how close we can cut this. Anna's here with the five, five, at five, five. The five at five. The number one story in Anna's mind is? Well, it's here. The World Series is coming. It's a matchup that has never happened before. We've got the Texas Rangers against the Diamondbacks. Who you got? Uh, I, here's what I have. I have, I am sick of national media members declaring this series a dud before a pitch has been thrown in it. Like, oh, that's what they're like, saying? Yeah, oh, it's, uh, it's not sexy teams. It's not, you know, great. It's not big stars. It's not huge markets. You know, you, you have the Texas Rangers and you got the Arizona Diamondbacks. These are two teams that earned their way there, you know, and immediately... People are like, oh, this series is going to stink. It doesn't have star power. Just tell that to the people buying tickets. Because, I mean, game one, which is happening in Texas, it's like $500 just to get in the door. $600 if you want to actually have a seat. So someone's going. uh, Yeah, somebody's going. There's there's enough people that care about it. But, you know, it's not the Baltimore Orioles that won 101 games in the American League. It's like, you know, it's a team that finished... A game behind the Astros in the American League West only won 90 games, and in the in, and in the National League, it's it's not the Dodgers that won 100 games, it's the Arizona Diamondbacks who were six games over 500, who lost four straight to finish the year, backed into the postseason, and then found a way to win. So, you know, good luck to us all, say the national pundits. But I love this series, and and I think uh, you know, win us over. That's what I say. Does it, John, does it make you like the new playoff format that they have where they include the wildcard teams and there's a lot more teams in the playoffs? Because, you know, a couple years ago, it would just be the top four teams in each league make the playoffs. Now you got teams like the Diamondbacks. You know, if this was 10 years ago, they're not even in the playoffs. Yeah, and if you look back at the history of wildcard teams, you know, there, there are plenty of wildcard teams that have advanced to, this, to the World Series, and some will argue that these wildcard teams – have to fight and claw and scratch their way into the playoffs. But the Diamondbacks are a really different story. I mean, they lose four straight to finish the regular season and still make it. So, uh, you know, they found a way. I'll say that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think it was. it's a little weird to me that some of the sports like the NBA include now 
way more than half the teams in the league getting a chance to go to the postseason or play in to the postseason. And in Major League Baseball, once upon a time, it was division winners plus one wild card and then expanded. And so I like it. I, I think it adds a little intrigue. And the Diamondbacks are a good story. And the way that, you know, they had to go to Philadelphia and win twice on the road, game six and seven against Bryce Harper. I'm going to tip my cap to those guys. I'm not going to dismiss them before a single pitch of this World Series. Bring us a great series. Bring home a great series. Let's entertain us all. If it's a dud, I'll declare it afterwards, but I don't want to do that before they played. Number two, go, Anna. So much hype. But the Wimby area begins tonight, and I would love your thoughts on this. Victor Wembenyama, eight-foot wingspan, light, quick, cover 20 feet of space around him starting a new time with the Spurs and uh, there's just so much talk about it like there's so much art that has been (laughs) shared about it that's what I find curious there's like comics and AI and there's just a lot of like art I don't know what do you make of this what are you seeing that you like in the art space there uh not much a lot most of it's really cheesy so I'm still waiting for that to improve. I'm sure it will once he starts actually playing. Do you like AI-generated art? I don't, because it just rings not true to me. They always have, like, eight fingers on each hand, too. Oh, wait, really? <laughs> That's what I've am noticed. I, yeah, am go- I not paying attention? <laughs> go look at, like, some of the AI videos and stuff that they've put out in pictures. It, the, the hands always is a dead giveaway. <laughs> Always look at the hands. I don't know if you guys know about Spurs Jesus. Do you know about Spurs Jesus? No, I don't know. So I guess he's like a super fan that dresses like Jesus. Okay. So there's videos circulating right now of him on like one of those boats that goes around the canals in San Antonio. Yeah. And at the front of the boat, he's got his arms raised like Jesus, and it says "Wimby Era Begins" or something like. Did Wimby you see? Era. Did you see the photo <laughs> of Wembenyama? Wembenyama blocking. I think it was Wiggins' shot. Was it two nights Andrew ago? Andrew Wiggins. Yeah, that where he's extended fully. Stephen, did you see that shot? Yeah, it's uh, it's insane. Yeah. It doesn't look real. He looks like an alien. Yeah. He is one of one. That is for sure. I mean, it's the the guy has all like the any type of you know height skills, like anything you want with that. He has it. We'll see if it works out on the court. Though. Yeah. So why do I why do I keep thinking he's not going to make it through the season? Because he's just a, that he's a yeah. tall, skinny Frenchman. Yeah. Is it just because I'm located <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> I knocking on wood. I didn't want to say it. I had the same thought. Uh, it's going to be good to see him while I, it lasts. I was looking at his ankles yeah. and his knees. I was like, I hope he's got strength. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the endurance that comes with all that length. But maybe it is because we're from here. We're from here. We go, okay, this is about going to be about 12 games of glory here. Shh, Knocking on wood. I wasn't going right. to say Number it. three. You said it. Um, okay, let's stick with the NBA. Uh, kind of an adorable moment, I guess, is Shador Sanders and Travis Hunter freak out after meeting LeBron James. They were sitting courtside for the Lakers season opener. 
against the Nuggets uh, on Tuesday night. And I guess LeBron approached Sanders and Hunter and greeted them and said, love y'all. Um, and then Sanders could then be overheard asking James to send them jerseys after the game, telling the 38-year-old, get us right. Uh, James walks away. Hunter lets out a hilariously enthusiastic yeah, screech. Ah! <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he just is overwhelmed meeting LeBron James. I watched the exchange. Who didn't play that many minutes. I watched the exchange, and I like Travis Hunter even more. Really? It was an authentic, I haven't been around star people mm-hmm. scream. Yeah. Shadur <laughs> hugs LeBron. Can I get your jersey later? Send it to me. No big deal. Like, he's been around famous people his whole life. Because yeah. he's Coach Prime's kid. Right. Travis Hunter looked like he's on The Price is Right. Okay? <laughs> I don't know. Steven, what was your reaction when you saw that? Uh, yeah, I mean, Travis Hunter just has a genuine, like, fudness about him, right? Like, it is it is very genuine when he is out there and he's doing his little Twitch streams. And he's wearing onesies. Like, he just, he's... He's, he's an easy guy to root for. Shadour, he's likable. He's very likable. Shadour, I, I like him. He does a lot of things that says, you know what, I'm a rich kid, and so that does bother me a little bit, but I don't know. I have no problem yeah. with it. I think it's pretty fun that they just want to you know, hang out with LeBron and do that kind of stuff. I think it's funny. I uh, I like Travis Hunter a lot. Shadour, I think, has some growing up to do. I mean, pretty charmed life, you know, as college kids. Hanging out. Courtside. Courtside at the Lakers. LeBron coming opener. over. Hey, you know. hey, fellas. You know? <laughs> but that also shows the impact that Coach Prime's had. Like, LeBron <laughs> wants to go talk to those guys, right? Right. Is it bad that I saw that and I went, well, bet against Colorado this weekend? <laughs> Not focused. Not, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? UCLA? What's UCLA doing? That's game like a true degenerate, and I love it. They're game planning. <laughs> you know? Did you just call him a degenerate? I did, yeah. Number four. That's awesome. Uh, all right. The Saga of Connor Stallions. When will Netflix come out with the docuseries about this? How quickly will they turn this one around? He's uh, apparently detailed in text messages with a friend, his relationship with Michigan football coaches, and how he stole signs. This is according to SI. Yeah. The uh, smoke is getting a little close. Because he's talking about how how tight he is with, you know, like the linebackers coach, Chris Partridge, and the special teams assistant coach, Jay Harbaugh. By the way, the son of head coach, Jim Harbaugh. This is uh, getting getting well, too close. He had, he had Jim-o, sign Jimbo. stealer on his LinkedIn. I mean, this, he was got a guy that wasn't, like, hiding anything he was doing. Buying the tickets in his name from the universities, filming from opposite the team's bench, on the sideline. Like, I actually think he's one of these people that was proud of what he did because he he thought he did it really well. Yeah. And not really thinking about how wrong it was. Yeah. Like, that's somebody else's job to think about whether or not this is wrong. I'm paid to do a job. I'm going to do it. Um Despite the fact that this may or may not have given Michigan an advantage, a real advantage, it's wrong and Michigan should be punished for it. Like, you know, we had Nick Aliotti on earlier. He said not that big a deal. He's kind of waving it off, but he says it is against the rules. It'll be interesting to see how the NCAA rules and how quickly they rule. But I'm getting 
a feeling more and more that Jim Harbaugh and Lincoln Riley will end up in the NFL sooner rather than later. Number five. Uh, a man claims that Kyle Kuzma's dog viciously bit him. I cannot say that <laughs> word. Viciously bit him earlier this year. He says the damages from the attack were so bad, and now he wants the NBA star to pay up. This reportedly happened on a plane near the Van Nuys what? Airport. <laughs> yes. The claimant says he was walking toward the cabin when suddenly Kuzma's dog bit him on his right arm and he suffered severe injuries and that it was all Kuzma's fault because he did not take action to secure the dog. Um, the former Lakers star has been seen with a couple of dogs on his Instagram page over the years. It's not clear which one of them. You needed is. one of those NDAs we were talking about. <laughs> Going to sit by me on the plane? Or, or a waiver, right? Yeah. Sign the waiver. Yeah, sign the waiver. Well, I saw the story. We talked about this uh, in our family around the dinner table the other night, but we saw the story about President Biden. President Biden had two dogs in the White House. One of them was a stray that he and his family, a uh, rescue dog, that mm-hmm. they, they took in. That dog bit uh, the Secret Service agent a number of times and then was had to go off to a farm somewhere. I presume. And then the second dog that the Bidens had bit the Secret Service agents something like seven times. That is not okay. And they had to get rid of that dog and take it somewhere else to like a second residence. Can you imagine being the Secret Service agent? I'm supposed to be protecting the president and the biggest threat is the German (laughs) Shepherd. You know what I mean? Really not the kind of hazard pay you'd expect. And after yeah. your dog bites somebody, how many times before you go, hey, I got a problem here? Right. How many times? Yeah. Well, unless you're the White House dog, I guess. No, I but every, but nobody. No, I, like any any yeah. other dog, it's like, depends on the scale of the bite, right? Some dogs are Does put. Does it? Well, yeah. No. Some dogs are put down. But for me, though. After one or two bites, I don't know what the law is. I think dog owners are blind, okay? You're blind to your own dog's faults. You are. Absolutely. You're totally, you don't get it. You don't see it. You, you're not in reality. But I've, I think if your dog bites somebody w- one time, mm-hmm. you can do that. You can yeah. go, oh, he's really, he never does that. It's my dog. I know my dog. First time. Gosh, it's so out of character. You can do that one time. Yeah. Second time, you got to soul search. You got to go, this might be a problem. <laughs> Third time, dog's got to go. <laughs> Seventh time? <laughs> Come on. The dog gets one take back? <laughs> get a mulligan. Maybe it's really yeah. stressful to be the White House dog. Maybe you know? the dog just wanted to get out of there. I don't <laughs> like it here. Just keep biting this guy until he's not get a rid politician dog. They got rid of the rescue. How many times do I have to bite this Secret <laughs> Service agent to get out of here? Maybe the dog was Republican. <laughs> Can you imagine? And I keep thinking in this scenario that there was a Secret Service agent who was designated to take the dog for a walk. Oh, totally. <laughs> and that guy kept getting bit. Can you oh, imagine? Not paid enough. All basically. the training you go through. Yeah, to deal with the dog. Firearms training, hostage negotiation. Get, might have to take a bullet for the uh, president, and instead your job is to uh, walk the dog and get bit. Mm. Not the best. Uh, thank you for the uh, five at five. Very good. Very economical too. You got out on time. I don't want to be late for Jonathan Smith. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, coming up next. Leave it here. Beavers coach Jonathan Smith will be uh, coming up here in a few minutes.
excited to talk with him. Steven, we're going to give our picks for the week coming up. Are we going to give our leans in the final segment? Can oh, we do that? I'm ready to lean, lean with and rock with it. All right. Uh, then uh, uh, we will uh, we'll do that. I'm told Jonathan will be calling in momentarily. You can let uh, our staff, all the interns that are there, the screener there, Judah probably running around there. Jonathan's calling in any moment now. Um do you have a lean yet on Oregon State, Arizona? You know what, John? This is I've been talking to Judah about this game all day today. Like this, I I have leaned back and forth. Right now I'm leaning towards Arizona plus the points. I don't know yet that I'm ready to pull the trigger on Arizona winning outright, but I what Aliotti said when he talked about the Oregon State defense, it really hit me, John. Like the defense just isn't as good this season. And I've done, you know, I've looked at the stats. I've I think I've shared it in one of the clips. Like the Oregon State defense on the road has been bad this year. I just I kind of want to see it first before I can say I, I believe Oregon State can go on the road and beat Jed Fish, who I think is a great coach. Like Jonathan Smith's a great coach. I think Jed Fish is right up there with him. I think Oregon's got Oregon State's got the better staff. I think when Nick Elliotti was talking earlier about Utah, it you know, I've heard him talk about Jonathan Smith. He's got a lot of respect for that coaching staff. So I think those two coaching staffs. But uh, I love what he had to say about the trap game. Like, do you know the stakes? If you're Oregon State, you have to know what the stakes are. And on that note, we'll bring Jonathan Smith onto the program. Oregon State traveling to Tucson on Saturday. Beavers coming off a of bye week. You know what I noticed on the bye week? Jonathan Smith would have uh, uh, have these tweets where he says "damn right," and he's got the like the emoji of the beaver and the check mark. Um, I think I know what that means, but I want him to tell me what that means. What does that mean when I see a tweet from you and it says "damn right"? Yeah, it's always you know new, new exciting times for the bees. Uh, potential additions, you know. Careful of being too specific, stuff yeah. like that. But I mean, like if I'm, let's just say hypothetically, I'm the coach of a college football program. I can tweet, "Damn right," and then everybody, like my, my fan base knows, "Ooh, something exciting coming," or got a got a uh, got a handshake from somebody, and that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a handshake because none of this stuff's binding to the. Signing day, you know, but um, it's a good thing. We're uh, we're excited about where we're at with all of that right now. I know that. I like it. Uh, that's good to hear, and and I think especially good to hear because you're in the middle of a season and there's all that outside uncertainty. But you guys are are, are mostly playing well. I I'll bet you want that Washington State one back, but you can't do anything about it now. What do you think about Arizona? What do you see on film when you go to Tucson? Right, uh, there's. They're solid, man. I mean, offensively, they get play with great balance. They get two big-time wideouts. Quarterback play's been really good. They're playing. They've had to and play two two guys, and you know they're throwing it well to those guys. But they mix in the run game with multiple backs. Um, just solid balance across the board on that side. I one of the you know best, most improved defenses in the league, if not the country. Um, these guys are playing way better, way better against the run. Um, shoot, held Washington State six points. So, you know, they're playing well. And they're kind of hot. I mean, they've been, they go to the Coliseum losing triple overtime. They play UW and only uh, kind of games in the balance till the end lose by seven. And then obviously Washington State game. So they got some real energy and momentum. And they had the same bye as us. So we'll see who handled the bye the best. And now we're going down there, which will be a tough place to play. So kind of all of that uh, makes us feel really motivated to prepare and try to play really well yeah you guys you know i think offensively 
it's it's sneaky. I I look at what you guys do, and I, I see the numbers are there, the balance is there. What do you focus on in a bye week when you know you feel like you're like you're mostly trending in the right direction? Yeah, you take a look at all the details and what we're doing. You also try to look at things as if, you know, the defensive coordinator who you're about to play, how he's looking at the stuff and what kind of tendencies do we have, um, you know, whether it's play calls, formations, what kind of tendencies, are we only doing the same thing in the same formation, uh, looking at that, some of the explosive plays, how are we getting that uh, produced, uh, what issues have we had in protection. I mean, you're looking at all kinds of stuff which is kind of nice where the buy landed. I mean, we played seven games, so there's a lot of tape there. And it obviously wasn't just offense. I mean, all three phases, we took a deep look at it and found multiple things that we got to clean up, do better, and some tendencies we have that we got to adjust to. DJ and Aiden Childs both kind of talking this week. It was kind of neat to hear Aiden talk a little bit. You've You've been around that kid all season. How much maturity does he have for a guy who just turned 18? Yeah, I think he's got a ton. I mean, he got here in January, uh, went to work, uh, continues to learn, and when he's playing, uh, he just plays the game. He doesn't overthink it, just lets his instincts take over. Um, I think he's handled playing in you know these games really well. It's not easy to be put in there kind of after the game starts, a couple of series, and then you're in there and knowing you're probably coming back out. And He's handled that really well, especially, you know, we got into Pac-12 play, in the first series he has against Utah, doesn't go his way. We didn't protect him very well, but we put him right back out there the next week. He throws a touchdown pass, and then he does it again the, the following week. So we got him. We'd like getting him out there. Uh, he's totally. If he wasn't mature enough to handle playing and, and going, we definitely wouldn't be doing it. And we're trying to force the issue because he is so mature and he's a really good football player. You have to like your team, though. I mean, you look around the conference. Your team is resilient. You got toughness. I'm not just blowing smoke at you. You guys look like you're well coached. You, you know, it's, it's. But this season's a gauntlet. And you know, I said earlier, I asked Nick Aliotti earlier, is this a trap game for Oregon State? You having to go to Tucson? He said he doesn't believe in trap games because there's only 12 games in a season. Do you do you be, agree with him on that? That you know, your guys understand the stakes as you go. You know, all these games are important now. Yeah, hundred percent. There's no thing, such thing as a trap game. You, you respect your opponent. Uh, you don't fear anybody. We talk about a respect all, fear none around here, and how we pay respect to our opponents, how we prepare, and it, our guys are very aware in this conference, week in and week out. Uh, you got to play well to win, man. And you never know how these things are going to go. And you look at some of the games from last weekend. UW up there doesn't score a touchdown on offense. Like who would have, who would have thought that? And then you throw the Arizona going up to Pullman and putting it on them like that. So. We're we're well well aware. We don't prepare well. We don't play well. We're going to get beaten probably by a few touchdowns. Yeah, and I think uh, I think most teams know that week in and week out. Jonathan Smith is with us, Oregon State coach. Can we? All right, I want to talk about signs and sign stealing without talking about specifics because I don't want to put you in a position where you're calling out another coach or anything. But just in general, you know, you've seen stuff over the years, and I know as a coaching staff, you have to be a little paranoid and and you have to protect that stuff. Like, how much do you guys focus on making sure there's not people wandering around your practices or at games filming stuff, or have you ever felt like other teams were doing that? Right. Well, we, we definitely around our practices have, you know, closed practices, and we got eyes on, on things around, especially when we were practicing in the stadium and it was getting finished, right, completed, like during the summer, and we got hundreds of people just up building this stadium I had in my back of my mind of people taking taking a look at our 
our practices. Sighting stealing has been going on for a long time. I can still remember it when I was calling plays at UW. I thought there were a couple of teams were stealing our signals. And the ones that are easy to steal, easier, I think, are on defense. Because nowadays on defense, you know, these calls are just one word, so it's just one signal. And, and, and you can study this stuff on tape, right? We get every game's on TV now, so you can cut up the TV copy of this thing and you get all the sideline views and in between plays and it's uh, it's out there. Um, and so it's something you got to be able to counteract knowing that uh, it can take place during the game. And, and I'm not here to say during the game if we got tipped to something on watching the other sideline, we'd, we'd try to use it. We're not huge on it because on offense, you know, we're huddling up and we're not overly concerned. But uh, you never know. I, I stole your sign earlier this season. You were milking the clock, and I and I knew you were milking the clock. You know, yeah, there's no, there no way around you, it. You and the rest of the country you know, they had an idea of what's going on. Well, let, let me ask you this. Okay, so let's say I in, intercept your sign on defense, and I, I can tell when you're playing man or when you're playing zone. Or maybe I could just get your coverage in general. You know, how much of an advantage is that to, to me, or is it a mild advantage, or is that a huge advantage? Right. Well, I think that it's an advantage if you can get it communicated, uh, meaning, like, if you're on offense, you call a play. The def- defensive call usually comes in after that. So you got to do something at the line of scrimmage, which you see all the time, right? They the line up in a formation, and then everyone looks to the sideline. And so if you've gotten the defensive signal at that point, then you could counteract and call something different. Um but, again, the defense has the opportunity to change it at that point. It's not easy, I don't think. Even if you knew whoever's picking the signals, getting that communicated to then the play caller and then getting that to the guys on the field to get executed, that that's not easy. I am uh, looking forward to seeing what you guys do on Saturday in Tucson. Do you, do you have memories of going there and playing as a player, or is there a stadium that – that you like to go to and, and play, or you found you know in, an enjoyable place to play. Forget forget right. the opposition. Yeah, I, you know, growing up in L.A., both those historic stadiums, the Coliseum and the Rose Bowl, were always cool for me. I do remember down, playing down at in Tucson. I think we played there in 2000. Found a way to win toward the end, if I remember right. Um, I, I kind of like you know, again this league. It's Last another couple months, but th- there's so many cool spots in the league that was easy, cool to travel to. Berkeley Stadium's kind of old, historic. The view from the press box looking out. You know, obviously, Husky Stadium is legitimate in, the, in that atmosphere that's created. So, but I do. I will say, no question. When I was playing, playing in in LA was always the best for me. The visiting locker rooms, as you go around the conference, they're not like the Taj Mahal, but some are better than others. Do you, who has the best visiting locker room? You know, I, I've seen your visiting locker rooms. you got across the street. Like, or you know, Colorado was complaining about Oregon's visiting locker room. You can't get enough players in there. But, but that, isn't that kind of the point? You don't want them to be comfortable? Yeah, 100%. That's what I was trying to say when we finished the stadium. Like, why are we building a brand-new visitor locker room? And right. so now <laughs> we got this thing. It's you know, nice for them. It's easy to get to the field. Where, you know, last year and for years, they had to cross the street and let the fans let them know hello and all that. The dungeon of Gill Coliseum, it was perfect. Because there is, there's some bad locker rooms still in the league. Um, space-wise, sometimes the hike you got to make, like in Tempe, the hike you got to make from the locker room all the way to the field takes forever. Um, there's some other spots that ain't, ain't great spacious-wise, so I wanted to be right with that. 
our place. Yeah. You want to have a home so, field advantage. You don't so, don't give them a good locker room. So you might have made it too nice, is what you're saying. I yeah, I proposed that. Too I easy. actually haven't gone in the thing. Yeah, I haven't gone <laughs> Wait, in, you, but it's way too easy. You've never been in it. Not since it's been finished. No, yeah. I, I think I went through like I don't know, three, four months ago, but there was nothing yeah. in there. You know, you, yeah. But, no. but when I I remember like covering games at like Stanford Stadium back, you know, back in the day, maybe right before the renovation or right after. I can't remember, but like their visiting locker room was nothing. It was like an adobe hut that was right outside the stadium. Like it, you look inside and there's just a bench there. I remember cows being the worst before they did the renovations of that thing. You had to walk down these, like, wooden stairs, and there was no space in there. Arizona used to be miserable as well, uh, but it's gotten a little bit better since um, they moved moved things around. But I don't remember Stanford's as much. How did you use the bye week, uh, you know, aside from maybe getting out and seeing some, some players? Do, do you catch your breath? Do you let your guys get healthy? How else do you use the bye week? Yeah, we we tried to catch our breath for sure. We put the UCLA game to rest the next day. Uh, game the off day Monday. They lifted on Tuesday. Coaches were game planning slash self scouting for the first couple of days. We practiced Wednesday, and then coaches kind of started to hit the road that night or the next day. Uh, I was able to yeah see some of the local games, and then I got out saw another game Saturday night. Um, didn't leave till the early afternoon, so I watched a little college football on Saturday. We got out to the pumpkin patch. Right, you got to get some nice. pumpkins. So me and the fam went on the uh, the hayride, got some got some pumpkins. And I think we're gonna car room tomorrow night. Good. Um, yeah, so it was good. It was a good week. I like that. That's a normal thing. Like, do you set up the front yard? Are you a front yard? Let's put up some decorations, Dad, or no? Uh, no, I don't. We got a bunch. We got too much, too many. I think decorations out there. <laughs> um, but it's set up and getting ready for trick treaters and, and the whole thing. What kind of candy bars uh, are the Smith household giving out this this year? Yeah, we're trying to be like king size, right? I mean, yes. give out the good candy, and then the neighborhood kids feel like, oh, that's the cool house, so yes. they're always looking out for that. Versus you give out bad candy, and you know, back in my day, you know, you get eggs at your house once in a while, toilet right. paper. Well, and I think given the job you have, you're, there's going to be some expectations, right? Like the kids <laughs> are going to, kids are going to expect like they're going to get a full size candy bar there. Yeah, yeah. Well, if they they come on through our place, we're gonna have them. We'll have king size. I like that. We'll bring a van down there. All right, set set up. <laughs> um, hey, before I let you go here, we got to talk a little bit about the World Series. So, uh, Diamondbacks playing against uh, the Rangers. It's not a uh, it's not a sexy series, but I like baseball. I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna give it a chance. Uh, who do you like? Yeah, um, I don't know much about either team besides Corey Seager's on the Rangers, former Dodger, yeah. that was a legend for our place, and the Diamond Diamondbacks kind of got us out of the playoffs. So I'm pulling for the Rangers. Oh, you're going against him. You won't go with the team that finished second in the National League West. You know, West. I don't know. No, no. Hmm. You know, Corey Seager. I don't. And I'll be honest. Yeah. I don't know if I'll watch it at all. But that's just in my gut. I root for the Rangers. All right, so when the Dodgers Dodgers win 100 games and, and they don't get there, as a fan, are you, uh, are you disappointed with that, or is that, hey, it's just baseball? You know, as a, as a fan, yeah, disappointed. As a coach, I'm kind of realistic. This thing is tough. You play all those games. It still comes down to a, you know, whatever, five-game series, you've got to win three games, pitching. You know, but one bad pitch can totally change a series. This thing is tough. Uh, so you win 100 games. I think that's awesome. Um, and I'll be rooting again next year for him. All right. Good luck in Tucson. We'll talk to you next week, and uh, thank you for joining us as always. 
Yeah. Okay, John. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. There he is. Trick or treat at his house. Full-size candy bars at Jonathan Smith's house. You heard it here first. Plus, the visiting best visiting locker room in the Pac-12 Conference might be in Corvallis. All right, Stephen and I are going to give our lean for the week coming up next. Not our official pick, but kind of where we're leaning on the weekend's games. I want you to leave it here. Great guest today. Uh, I want to uh, give a shout-out to the new president at Portland State, Ann Cudd, who came on the show, the president. She was on in the 3 o'clock hour. You can get the podcast of that interview uh, by going to wherever you get a podcast. Also, uh, Nick Aliotti, the former Oregon defensive coordinator, he was with us. Really good interview with Nick Aliotti. And then you just heard Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach. Tomorrow on the show... It'll be Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach. Anthony Gold, Oregon statewide receiver. Plus, uh, we've got some Utah surprises. Bill Riley, ESPN 700. And Matt Safino, KGW meteorologist, a Utah grad and a guy who roots for the Utes. He'll be joining us uh, in the next couple of days, as will Kirk Herbstreet. Herbstreet's on Friday's show. If you uh, want to make an appointment, I think he's coming on Friday at 4 o'clock. So uh, lock it in and make sure you're here. Blazers will lift the lid on their season tonight on the road against the Clippers. Stephen, what are you looking for in Game 1 of the season? Yeah, I'm looking for uh, a little bit of competitiveness. I, I think, you know, we talked about this before, John. I think the Blazers, you know, they, they're not going to tank right from the start of the season, and they have, you know, they're not deep, but they have some solid players on their team. They don't necessarily have that star player yet, but they got some solid guys. As we talked about, the you know the top hundred players, they had more this year than they did last year. So, I expect them to be competitive in this game. I expect them to be competitive early on in the season. I'm excited to see what Scoot Henderson does. I think the key for Scoot right now, if you want to look for something specifically, is see how many turnovers he has. Uh, he, he turned the ball over a lot in the preseason. He did a little. He did that a lot in the G League last season. He still is only 19 years old. Uh, he loves to play fast. He likes to make a lot of plays. So there's going to be turnovers that go along with it. But I think it's going to be a learning process for Scoot Henderson going into this season. And I, I'm excited to see what he does. But watch how many turnovers he has. I, I think it could be a high number, and that could be a problem going into the season. But uh, i tell you what, John, I'm excited to watch Scoot. I'm excited to watch Shane Sharp hopefully get a cool dunk or two and uh, see the progression of all the players. I just hope that the season doesn't turn into I hope I can get a cool dunk or two. You know what I mean? Like, you got to have a little more than that. But I get what you're looking for on Game 1, opening night, on the road. Uh, let's pivot to the Pac-12 games coming up this weekend and give our lean for the week. Oregon's at Utah in the early game. It's 12.30 Saturday on Fox. Ducks are about a 6.5 to 7-point favorite. I think Oregon's going to win the game, Stephen. My, my, that's my lean right now. But I don't know if they're going to cover 6.5 or 7. I think this could be like a 3, 4, 5, 6-point game. Right now, that's kind of where I'm sitting, that Oregon wins the game. Not sure if they're going to cover. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm leaning uh, Utah to cover and Oregon to win the game. But you know, as I keep digging into this more, I kind of think I might go with Oregon by game time uh, to cover the points. I, I, there's a, there's just stuff about Utah that I don't necessarily like. Bryson Barnes, I know he had a great drive against USC. But you go look at his numbers, John, he hasn't been very good. And it's going to be one of those things where if Oregon can stop the run, what is Utah going to do to score in Oregon? I don't know what it's going to be. I, I, you know, the Oregon run defense has been good, but they haven't faced a lot of good opponents. It's going to come down to can Utah run the football? If they can, it's going to be a close game. If they can't, I think Oregon could actually win this game by double digits. But right now, I am leaning Oregon to win, but Utah to cover the points. I think Oregon, if this game were at Autzen Stadium, would win it by about seventeen points. It, but I, 
But so I guess I have to figure out what is Rice Eccles Stadium worth. Uh, USC's at Cal, one o'clock Saturday on the Pac-12 networks. Nick Aliotti will be on that broadcast. USC is a ten and a half to eleven point favorite. Um, I I think I would pick USC to win, maybe, probably, but you you give me Cal an eleven. I'd feel pretty good about that because right now I just don't know what USC is going to show up like. You know, coach has been out for a couple games this week, coming off a bad loss. Their season essentially doesn't look like it's going anywhere. So will they play hard? And I don't know. And I think Cal at home will give them their best punch. I agree with you. Like, if we're ranking teams that give up on their season in the Pac-12, USC has to be one or two. It's them and Colorado between the two schools that I feel like would give up on their season. And Cal would be one of the teams I feel like would never give up on the season just based on Justin Wilcox and the way he coaches. You know, and Cal at three and four, you know, this is a winnable ball game for them, I think. Even at eleven points, you know, they're trying to get to a bowl game this season. Wilcox talked about how important it is to win football games this season. So I, I'm with you. I, I can't pick against USC to lose the game outright, but I'm going Cal right now and uh it may be a surprise upset special as we get closer. Washington is at Stanford, 4 o'clock Saturday on FS1. Something's not right with Michael Penix Jr., but Stanford's not the right team to exploit that. They they were just uh, inept against UCLA last week and just got blown off the field. Washington is a 26.5-point favorite. My lean right now is that Washington bounces back from the Arizona State game, plays better, wins by... Somewhere between 24 and 35 points. I would probably lean right now that they cover the 26 and a half. I just don't believe in Stanford. You know what? I don't believe in Stanford either, but I don't believe Michael Penix Jr. is healthy. And I, you know, I had heard some things last week. I think I might even asked you off there, like, is Penix healthy? And we're like, yeah, probably healthy. And then he did, he just did not, he wasn't he right. Look right. He wasn't right yeah. last week. I don't think that he'll be right this week. I mean, would it surprise you if at some point maybe he doesn't even play in this game? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm just that wouldn't here. surprise me. And I And I think the injury was suffered at the end of the Oregon game, but nobody will say it. And I still think he could play through it. I just don't think Oregon knew he was hurt. I think Arizona State did and, and figured it out. And they were just attacking him right at the point of attack. They were shooting the A-gap. They were blitzing linebackers and safeties through the A-gap and just overwhelmed Washington's offensive line. Now, Washington has some guys playing out of position. Does, does Stanford have the guys to, to do that? Do they have the scheme and the guys to, to make Washington uncomfortable? I don't think so. That, that, the but wide receiver that stepped, you know, that, uh, stepped up against Colorado, I forget his name, Dell something or other, but uh, yeah. he had another big game last week against UCLA. Uh, in that blow. I, think that, you know, I think he's developed into something. They got something going there. I'm going to take Stanford plus the points. I think Washington wins the game. Obviously, I don't think they're going to lose to Stanford, but I'm going to take Stanford plus the points. And I just, you know... It was it was that it was towards the end because you look go back to that Oregon game they had the they had the one where it was you know first and goal at about the two yard line Washington did and they tried to run four straight plays they didn't put the ball at Penix's hands they knew something was wrong I think something was wrong with him I think he's going to try to get right and get healthy and Stanford is a perfect opportunity to do that so it's either you know take they have a very easy game plan or maybe take some plays off take some you know get some backups in there but I think uh, I'm gonna take Stanford plus the points Colorado is at UCLA 4:30 Saturday on ABC. Coach Prime desperately needed a bye week. UCLA is coming off the closest thing to a bye week. They had Stanford. They beat them 42-7. to They will meet at the Rose Bowl on Saturday. This one has backdoor cover all, written all over it for me. UCLA is a 17-point favorite, but UCLA is clearly the better team in my book. 
And I think UCLA could beat Colorado 42-21 and cover the 17 points. But I also am a little concerned that this might end up being like a 35-14 game that turns into 35-21 in the last 50 seconds, you know, a garbage touchdown scored late. I think UCLA is going to win it. I'm concerned about a backdoor cover from Colorado, but right now I'd probably take UCLA and take them to cover. The thing was is last week I said, you know, I think Colorado's going to win this game against UCLA, but that was before UCLA made the decision to go with Chase Garbers at quarterback. You know, they they kind of benched Chip Kelly benched basically Dante Moore and with Chase Garbers, and I think that's the right choice. You know, I, I was talked about this last week. I don't think Dante Moore's the best quarterback on the team. I don't think Garbers is great, but he's better than Dante Moore at this moment. So I don't like Colorado winning if Garbers is playing because there's just you know Dante Moore had three straight weeks of throwing a pick six. Like he just wasn't very good. I think Colorado stays in the game. I think they stay within the number, but I think UCLA wins now. Now that they're going to go with Chase Garbers, it seems like over Dante Moore. But man, if they go with Dante Moore, John, I think I might switch that and go with Colorado to win outright. But without that, without that choice, I, I just got to pick uh, Colorado to cover. But I'll take UCLA to win. Washington State is at Arizona State, five o'clock Saturday on the Pac-12 networks. This is a pivotal game for the Cougars. They are favored by six and a half. I think they have to win this game if their season's going to be worth a damn. Arizona State's running out of time, out of opportunities and times to win a game. You know, they might be headed to 0-9 in Pac-12 play. This is one they might be able to get because Washington State just hasn't been very good. I think this game's going to be really close. Uh, I would gun to my head, pick Washington State to win it right now, but I think this could be like a three-point game. I would love to take Arizona State and the 6.5 at home. Yeah, I mean, Arizona State's defense has been pretty good this season. I mean, they've had a few games where they have played really well. The offense has a lot to left to be desired, but that Washington State defense has you know has shown to have some holes in it these last couple of weeks. I'm with you. I think Arizona State covers. I'm going to say Arizona State wins this game outright, and they get that you know, the one headline win for Kenny Dillingham this year. You, know, you look at these new coaches, a lot of times when these really good coaches, they'll get that one victory in year one. I think this is it for Kenny Dillingham, but... Uh, yeah, I don't like what I've seen out of Washington State lately. They got the backdoor cover last week over Oregon, which you know I had that one. You didn't, John? So I know. didn't. That one killed me. That one. Yeah. That, one that was 58 brutal. Fifty-eight seconds left. You, uh, yeah, you, you, you texted me like, "Yeah, we're not going to talk about that one." So I, I wanted to bring it up, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I think Arizona State actually gets the win outright over Washington State this week. Oregon State's at Arizona, seven thirty on Saturday, ESPN. Uh, the Beavers are favored by three and a half. If you would have asked me about this game before the show today. I would say I would pick Oregon State to win, but I would probably call it like a 31-30 game. I think it's going to be that kind of game, that close. But after hearing Nick Aliotti, after talking with Jonathan Smith, I now think the Beavers win it, and I think they cover the three and a half. So I'm kind of I'm a little all over the place with this game, but it, but it, I think it. What it tells me is this is a dicey game for Oregon State. They have to play well to win. Yeah, this is going to be a good game. I, I want to ask you this because the three and a half points, it, it scares me a little bit, John. Like, that, I, I expected it to be a little higher than that, three and a half only. If this game's at Reese, or what, what's the spread at? Double digits probably? Yeah, I think if this game's at Reese, or it's nine and a half, ten, ten and a half. Yeah, I, Right in there. It just it scares me that it's only three and a half. Like it's begging me to bet, to bet Oregon State, and then it's going to make me look like a fool when Arizona wins outright. But I'm going to do that right now. I'm leaning Oregon State with you. I, I, and Nick Eliotti made a great point about you know Arizona's turned a corner. It's clear, but they haven't played a team like Oregon State that can beat you running the football and can throw it okay. We'll, we'll like, see because well because Smith talked about how good the defense has improved against the run. We'll see how good they really have against Oregon State. 
Yeah, and so we'll have to uh, we'll have to see what happens. But we'll lock in our picks on tomorrow's show. Dan Lanning will be joining us, Oregon football coach tomorrow. Friday it'll be Kirk Herbstreet. So we got great guests for you all week long. Um, you know, I tried to put together the best lineup of guests that we had this week, and and had to sort through a lot of things. It was really tight. Like the show it started getting down to like I had some people that that I had considered as guests, and I was like, you know what, I gotta have to punt them to next week. And so I really uh, do appreciate Kyle Whittingham and Jonathan Smith and Nick Aliotti and the Portland State President and Cud coming on the show and Kirk Herbstreet coming on the show. We get the guests here. We're not home of the Beavers. We're not home of the Ducks. I'm not going to get into that. I don't want to be that. And But we are home of the truth, and we get the best guests. So I appreciate that you're here for all of it. Um, all right, grab a podcast to this show wherever you get a podcast. Read me exclusively now at johnconzano.com. And remember, the bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.